WAPG Airline Pilot Guy. Airline Pilot Guy, episode 284. Hello, you're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show, the view from our side of the cockpit door. I'm Captain Jeff, your host, broadcasting live from Studio 1A in the APG Headquarters building in Roswell, Georgia. In this episode, flying under the influence of ecstasy, NTSB factual report released on Eastern Airlines charter flight runway overrun at LaGuardia, severe turbulence on an American Airlines A330, more news, feedback, and the latest Plain Tales installment, 7543. So get all settled in. Tray tables and seatbacks in their upright and locked positions. Electronic devices powered on. Flight 284 is ready for pushback. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Airline Pilot Guys show. I'm Captain Jeff, an airline pilot for a major U.S legacy carrier and joining me today from a, a, well I, normally across the pond but no he's up in uh, the greater new york city area a wide body airbus captain for a major u.s excuse me european carrier and a professional photographer former air no not former airline pilot former fighter pilot and just a all-around great guy Captain Nick. Uh, thanks very much indeed, Jeff. I was beginning to wonder if you've forgotten all about me. I don't like. I don't. I don't remember yeah, but, anything. But who really. are you? Where do you come from? What did you yeah, used to do? Who is this guy? What is he doing? <laughs> exactly Too many right. things going on over here in the uh, behind the scenes with all the electronics and everything, and it, it's a little bit different than my normal rig, which is kind of a normal thing. <laughs> well, it's uh, it's nice to see you messing about with some new gear for a change. Not that it doesn't happen every show. Every show. <laughs> anyway, delight to be back on. Uh, thank you very much indeed. Uh, and looking forward to a short but sweet show. So uh, that'll be great. I can uh, perhaps get out and join uh, my crew here in New York and, uh, you know, have a few beers with them. And uh, I think I know where they're going, so I'll chase after ah, them. They thought they were going to be ditching you. They were wrong. Uh, exactly right. Yeah, uh, they did their best, but I've got a tracking device set on my first officer, so I'll be able to keep <laughs> tabs on him. Well, okay. Um, so how was your flight over? You just got in a little while ago, right? Uh, absolutely. Uh, I had a, a nice break at home, and my first trip for a little while. And uh, it, it's always nice, I think, to fly on a Sunday because it's easy to get to work. You know, the roads are really quiet. Uh, the airport was busy. Uh, it's, you know, it's a lot of holiday traffic, uh, a lot of holiday makers uh, this time of the year. Uh, aircraft was quite full, but we um, got off on time. Oh, my lovely uh, first officer. Um, he is uh, brand new to uh, uh, the company. He's, uh, this is, was his first flight uh, after uh, completing his training. Uh, lovely uh, Gareth. And um, he's a delight to fly with. Very nice guy. Keenest must have come to us from uh, one of the uh, low-cost carriers, but he's got a lot of hours in on Airbus, so he knows his stuff. Uh, and uh, he uh, has only just converted to the 330, and I think he only did something like five or six sectors training total. 
So um, he hasn't got a lot of time on the airplane, but he flew it very nicely uh, and uh, did, conducted an excellent uh, flight over. The only interesting thing was I saw a UFO. Really? An yeah. unident- unidentified flying object? Absolutely. Okay. I mean, we were coming down uh, the what was it, the Parch 2 arrival into JFK, and um, I was looking across at uh, Gareth beside me on the seat. We were just discussing uh, the next constraint we had to hit, and uh, while I looked at him, something hurtled past the window, and uh, I really only got an absolutely glancing impression of it. It was uh, small. Uh, a white and black um, sort of uh, the speed it was moving. It's very hard to tell a shape, vaguely ovoid in shape. Um, and uh, it was very close to us. It was probably, you know, at the speed it went past the aircraft, it was probably only, it was probably within the wingspan of the aircraft, only, say, 30 feet away. And it went past right uh past his window. Of course, uh, Gareth didn't see it because he was looking at me uh, and I just saw it whip past the aircraft. I went, bloody hell, what was that? Um, and of course, uh, you know, they, it's, it's gone in, in an absolute instant. So it was either a bird or a drone at 16,000 feet. So wow. you know, I'm going, I don't, I don't think it was a balloon. It just wasn't the right shape. Although, you know, you can see met balloons. I've seen them before. Uh, but So uh, I don't know what it was. Uh, and uh, that'll be a mystery forever. So definitely an unidentified flying object. Well, Orson is concerned. He says, uh, how strong is that beer, Nick? Yeah, <laughs> not strong <laughs> enough. Uh, there you go. So, yes, wow. 16,000 feet. Oh, interesting. What I mean, birds do fly up there. I know um, there are some birds there that are capable of crossing the Himalayas, and that's well above 20,000 feet. Uh, I know the Hooper Swan has been seen or even had a bird strike at 24,000 feet. So there are birds that can fly at extreme altitudes, but I've never seen one up there. Uh, And I know that drones can get up to quite high altitudes if someone's stupid enough to do it. And um, uh, because there was one spotted in the... uh, uh, the, one of the London holding patterns at 13,500 feet. So it could have been either of those or it could have been a plastic bag for all I know. Well, I, I saw a, um, a big flock of Canadian geese at about uh, 12, 13,000 feet um, just north of the Atlanta International Airport um, earlier this year. Okay. Well, this was just a single one. Yeah. Uh, we did have a look around to see if there was anything else. but uh, And it, it could have been the size and shape of uh, goose-ish. Yeah. I think, but it was kind of a, a blurry streamlined shape. Huh. So. Uh, Anyway, it'll, that'll, that'll be something that I will uh, take with me to my grave. But so apart from that, uh, everything worked out pretty well, actually. We got a nice uh, arrival, no delays, uh, an easy enough approach on a 3-1 right, which is not hard here at uh, JFK. Um, we didn't even speak to ground control. Uh, they just told us to monitor, and we took taxi straight in. Uh, and straight onto our gate, so it was all nice and slick. I was very uh, impressed for a change. It was good, excellent. And um, I think you have some kind of a meetup. Uh, what? When is that? Next next week or later this uh, week? Yeah, my next trip. Uh, that's in San Francisco. We're having yeah. kind of a bit of a West Coast meetup. So uh, at the moment, uh, 
we have got about, uh, I think, four or five uh, APGs who've mentioned it on Slack. I'm going to post the details on Facebook. Oh, that's not until soon. next month, or is it later this month? No, it's later this month. It's on the 12th, Saturday okay. the 12th. Okay. Now, if I've got time just to fire up Slack, I can tell you where it'll be. It's uh, it's in San Francisco, San Francisco, not far from the financial district, because my hotel is the Hilton there. Um, and it's not in the introduce yourself section, Nicholas. Stupid. Ah, oh, you idiot. Yeah. Come on. Meet What's wrong with you? I know. Um, <laughs> and, oh, look, there's your meetup in there as well. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, but mine's first. Uh, okay. Come on, come on, come on, San Francisco. <sighs> no. <laughs> Take your time. I can edit all this out. Okay. I won't, but I could. <laughs> the Last Drop Tavern seems to be the uh, popular choice. So uh, I said somewhere late afternoon, early, uh, you know, very early evening. So it looks like five o'clock is, or in fact, I think I'm going to be there at four. And I think some of the guys are going to be there at four. But basically between four and five, we're going to kick off uh, perhaps as early as four at the Last Drop Tavern. Uh, in San Francisco. So anyone who wants to come and join us to chew aviation over to talk about things boring and pilot-wise. Uh, and uh, so uh, I know uh, uh, Jan the Man, um, Con One Eds, uh, Con Connie, I think that is, Connie Edwards uh, is going to be there and Fred's going to be there. Um, and Dave Proctor, and uh, Jan the man is Jan Sears. So uh, I think there are some of the people coming. Uh, there are probably going to be more. So uh, looking forward to a great trip. That'll be great fun. Yeah, those are great people uh, up there in Northern California. Yeah, I think you'll have a blast. Well, it's, it's your happy hunting ground, isn't it, California? Well, uh, yeah, I grew up in Southern California, but I lived a few years up in Northern California and actually prefer Northern California ah. uh, myself. Uh, I've had uh, relatives that have lived up there for quite some time, and I just uh, I, I love the climate up there and uh, just a lot of things about Northern California I love. Uh, not to say, not those cool. of you listening right now in Southern California, that I, I hate Southern California. I, I didn't say that. I just prefer Northern California. Now, I think I've been crossed off, let's see, uh, yes. uh, Brandon <laughs> Gonzalez's list. I'll probably never hear from him again, you know, the guy that... Uh, podcasting from a plane podcast hey at least i put another plug in for you you know you can't you can't argue yeah. you can't be mad at me for that <laughs> but uh anyway um i there are a lot of i have a lot of negative inner uh uh memories of southern california so you know and then of course my family uh, now they're all gone and uh that that kind of has with it some negative memories as well and then plus i have a legal issue going on that really is a big negative issue going on for me there but anyway i don't want to get into that um let's see so we talked about uh, your meetup in san francisco on the uh, saturday the 12th uh i'm leaving for a trip tomorrow a four-day trip and um let's see i'll be in norfolk virginia tomorrow afternoon and then uh, next day i end up uh, in little rock very early in the day so i'm thinking maybe getting together 
for a little bit of a meetup um, uh, midday uh, because I want to leave the late afternoon, early evening open for uh, potentially uh, the recording of part two of today's show. And uh, let's see, Wednesday I'll be in Louisville, Kentucky, and uh, we'll meet up with a few folks over there. Again, that's all uh, all the information in Slack, but I think we're going to be meeting up at the Louisville Slugger Museum at about 4 o'clock. And uh, we'll probably go somewhere after that and uh, have a few beers and talk uh, baseball bats and airplanes. You know, they go along together pretty well, I think. Um, uh, yeah, so yeah. Um, bats and baseball. Uh, Louisville Slugger is a bat um, manufacturer, baseball ah, bat manufacturer. Okay. Thanks for that. I assumed yes. it was some kind of boxing venue, but there you go. Yeah, I know. It sounds like uh, they, they just call their, their bat uh, the Slugger. Ah. And, Which was the uh, bat that had a sort of Z lightning strike on it, or was that a made-up bat in some movie? I, I don't know. Okay. I'm not sure. Uh, so, again, uh, Little Rock Tuesday, uh, midday most likely, and Louisville on Wednesday, uh, 1600 at the Louisville Slugger Museum. And, uh, oh, you know, sad, sad news. Um, the uh, many people who have been following the show, especially uh, the early days of the show, and especially those of you who uh, watched, listened to the Catholic Weekend show that I used to host and haven't done for a few years now, uh, you will be familiar with um, the squawking Mr. Cedric, my pet cockatiel. He passed away uh, last week, and so he was just a couple months shy of 18 years old. And uh, so he lived a nice long bird life. And uh, that is yeah. a ripe old age, but I know parrots can live to you know, a considerable age, can't they? Yeah, they can. And uh, anyway, so I'm going to miss the old guy, the old bird. <laughs> so now there's only one old bird in the house me. <laughs> no more squawking from Mr. Cedric. Oh, well. Um, that is, is very sad, but uh, since squawking, uh, by parrots and squawking in aviation uh, are common terms. Yeah. We, you know, we just like to know what his final squawk was. <laughs> you know, he wasn't very talkative the uh, Monday morning that I um, went in. And we keep him in a in the laundry room because it's nice and dark, and then we you know put a a cover over his cage. And uh, that morning, I was getting him out of the laundry room to take him out into the regular part of the house. And uh, I, I said, you know, every time I, I go in there and take the cover off, I'm kind of half expecting that he's going to be like on the on the floor of the uh, of the cage. And uh, and he wasn't. And I said, oh, hey, good. Good to see you. Man, you've lived a long life. And, uh, you know, it's ironic that uh, while I was on my trip, I think it was the very next day he was he was gone. So maybe maybe it was something I said I <laughs> oh, or didn't say. You never know. Yeah. Anyway, well, so, so we'll try and avoid uh, Monty Python uh, nailing your parrot to the perch jokes. <laughs> okay, no, actually, I'm all I'm all for humor. So, <laughs> uh, but we we're all very sad losing losing a lot. I mean, eighteen years long time to have a pet. Yeah, home, so it will be. It'll leave a gap in your life. Yes, yes, it will. So, Cedric, rest in peace. Okay, um, now last week we were talking about that. Um, episode of the uh, hail encounter by the Turkish low-cost airline over there, uh, the, the uh, yeah. pilot from Ukraine. 
and how they were we cast some nasturtiums didn't we yeah we know we were everybody's hailing him as a hero and i said you know this reminds me a lot of an instance uh, or incident that occurred um in the atlanta area um and i was wrong at first i said it was airtran i thought no I, maybe it was before that and i said it was value jet but value jet and airtran are very um they have a connection uh, value jet when they went out of business Basically, they were reincarnated as AirTran Airlines. So I wasn't far off. So it was actually an AirTran flight. It was May of 1998. And I uh, was telling you that uh, I uh, or our airplane, along with many other flights, were uh, waiting for the uh, very, very nasty weather to clear. And nobody uh, accepted a takeoff clearance until this guy piped up and said, yeah, no problem. So... Um, this guy decided to take off and they flew to the north. And uh, again, it was, uh, um, uh, AirTran flight 426. And let's see. I, I also said that, uh, Acme airline was, uh, Atlas. I don't know why I said that, but, uh, I kind of slipped there. Uh, anyway, uh, I also said that they came back to Atlanta. Actually, they diverted to uh, Chattanooga after they got through this line of weather barely and uh i also said his license was suspended but it was not uh, but he was demoted to first officer the captain and uh, he also had a history of incidents and accidents failed oral examinations and check rides uh so let me um play a little i can put the uh, in the show notes the full narrative of the uh, uh ntsb report of airtran flight 426 but uh let me read a little bit of this, if you don't mind. Bear with me. The captain stated, uh, after coming in from Dallas-Fort Worth to Atlanta, the captain stated that he looked at a weather display in the AirTran operations area and observed a line of weather along the Georgia and Tennessee borders. He stated that he was not sure if the weather depiction was from a satellite or radar, but the line was significant. He stated that the line had red radar displays in North Georgia and was more like a blob instead of a single cell. In other words, there was no breaks. The first officer stated that he observed a radar display in the AirTran operations area that depicted a line of weather with red, yellow, and green colored cells along the Georgia and Tennessee borders. The captain stated that after returning to the airplane, he briefed a flight attendant telling her that he did not notice any hazardous weather around Atlanta, that the Chicago Midway weather was improving, and that there was some adverse weather en route to Midway. Uh, let's see, data, uh, when they made it through this area, uh, approximately 20, 23,000 feet, data from the digital flight recorder indicated that about three minutes before the hail encounter, the airplane's pitch angle decreased from four degrees to minus four degrees, so four degrees nose up to uh, four degrees nose down, while the airplane climbed from fifteen to 16,000 feet. So Captain Nick and I and many people listening know that if you are going nose down, but you're still climbing, that means you're in an updraft. And let's see, some more interesting information here. Um, airplane speed increased from 305 to 350 knots. Wow. Pressure altitude decreased from 15.6 to 14.6. Its vertical acceleration increased to 1.5 Gs. Its longitudinal acceleration decreased to zero. Its roll changed from zero to minus six degrees, so a left six degree turn. Its control column pitch became erratic. Engine pressure ratios, the engines, 
decreased from 1.8 to approximately 1.4. And then <laughs> just a short period later, while climbing through 20,500 feet, many of the DFDR parameters became erratic again. Roll degrees reached an extreme of about minus 40, so 40 degrees to the left, continued to oscillate between 20 degrees no, um, to the right and, uh, I'm sorry, the uh, pitch. Um, they, they kept going between 20 to the right and 10 to the left after that big 40 degree left uh, uh, roll. Pitch angle increased to about 10, then, de -decre then decreased to minus 6 and remained erratic throughout the incident. Vertical acceleration oscillated between 2.9 Gs and minus 0.9. So basically anywhere from almost 3 Gs to weightlessness. Longitudinal acceleration fluctuated between 0 and 0.15 Gs. So basically, as you can tell, um, they were in quite uh, severe conditions, um, almost basically out of control until they emerged uh, on the other side of this weather. Uh, the airplane's radome had separated. Portions of it had been ingested into the right engine. All three outer panes of the cockpit front windshield were shattered. The wing leading edge devices, horizontal stabilizer leading edge, vertical stabilizer leading edge, and both left and right engine inlet cowls were dented and damaged. Both engines sustained foreign object damage. And then, as I mentioned uh, just a few minutes ago, a review of the FAA and NTSB records revealed that in 1990, about um, about f eight, eight years before this incident, the captain failed the oral on uh, his DC-9 type rating. He was retested and subsequently passed on September 15th, uh, just the next month. The captain failed the entire flight test portion of his DC-9 type rating check ride. He was retested and subsequently passed. Uh, in 1994, the captain was involved in an air carrier incident in which he lost control of a DC-9 during a takeoff roll. In adverse weather conditions, the takeoff was aborted and the airplane departed the runway onto a grassy area. And finally, uh, later that year, the captain was involved in an air carrier accident in which he was in command of a DC-9 that encountered moderate convective turbulence during climb-out, causing a flight attendant to suffer multiple leg fractures. So not a really great record, I'd say. Yeah, the, uh, you're being very generous, yeah. Jeff. And then the uh, first officer uh, also he had a, a record of an unsatisfactory oral examination, uh, and then uh, during a requalification on the DC nine that he was retested and subsequently passed. Have a little bit of so so here I am uh, back in 1998, witnessed this whole thing, saw the guy depart, and thinking that guy is crazy. Because nobody else there, I mean, nobody else said they wanted to go because the weather was just that bad. And I have a little bit of audio from uh, a YouTube video. I'll put the uh, link in the show notes. But this is the uh, a couple of the news reports regarding, you know, this hero pilot and the incident. The hail and wind were so powerful, the DC-9's nose cone, or ray dome as it's called, was knocked off. A radar antenna inside was damaged, the windshield was shattered, and the pilot lost his altitude and airspeed indicators. Still, the DC-9 remained flyable, and with the help of controllers, pilot Benton West brought her down safely. 
They were yelling, but they were pretty calm. But as soon as they found out what, how much danger they really were in, they started crying in the airport. That's where you really saw the emotional uh, stuff happening. That's when passengers got a look at the damage. The nose, the windshield, the hail-dented wings. They stood in line to hug their captain. And when asked what was driving him during the ordeal, Benton West let his emotion show. I love my wife. I was going to see her again. Wasn't going to be an end like this. I've been I've been shot down twice in Vietnam, so this this it wasn't going to end like this. Benton West flew jet fighters in Vietnam, where he won the Purple Heart. And the wife, for whom he has so much love, said this it's afternoon no, the feeling he, is mutual. I think that he's such a good pilot, and he really enjoys what he's doing. And I just have conditioned myself that I just try not to worry about it. The severe turbulence that 426 hit lasted no more than 15 to 30 seconds, according to the pilot, but after dropping 1,000 feet and under hail bombardment, many passengers feared the worst. I mean, we were going down, and he managed to control the plane and, you know, lead us into safety. That praise for the captain is echoed by the Alamanchili family of Baton Rouge, who came to Chicago for a wedding today and regard Benton West as a hero. I said, thanks for saving our lives. What did he say? He said, thank you. The thanks having been said, investigators now have to figure out how and why Flight 426 wound up in such vicious weather. Sometimes it moves so fast it can't be avoided, but these storms were forecast. Captain West has told investigators that he was in clear air and was navigating around the worst of the storms when the hail and turbulence hit. Paul, how many people wow. that were on the first leg of that flight got on that second plane? I don't know the total number that came on to Chicago, but a lot of people went back to Atlanta in buses. Mm -hmm. Just chose not to fly. And he volunteered. And the pilot, pilot carried on, right? Yeah, when yeah. They, they say, you're going to fly the backup plane? And he says, I'm going to fly. And they all cheered. Well, he didn't fly, but mm -hmm. nonetheless, they were it. very happy that he volunteered to do that. Right back great, on the horse. Great right? confidence in yeah. him. Right? Okay, yeah. Paul, thanks. This is World News Tonight with Peter Jennings. Good evening. Pilot couldn't see where he was going. A lot of passengers thought it was their last flight. But what a pilot. ABC's Jim Williams picks up the story over Tennessee. As AirTran Flight 426 approached the airport in Chattanooga, there were fears the damaged plane might overshoot the runway. But it landed safely, ending a terrifying ride. We could feel ourselves like falling, literally falling, and the plane shaking real bad. People were hitting their heads on the, the baggage part where you put your bags. At about the time the plane was leaving Atlanta, storms began battering the southeast. The plane, headed for Chicago, flew right into that violent weather. The storm tore off the DC-9's nose cone, and hail smashed the cockpit windows. You can hear the sound of the hail falling on a plane hard, I mean real hard. And uh, I took a peek and I could see the front window, the windshield was shattered. The pilot, Benton West, could not see ahead, and some of his instruments had been knocked Speed out. or altitude, and the window is blown out. I know these glasses are bulletproof, and it was cracking. 7.20 p.m. Air traffic controllers suggest an emergency landing in Chattanooga, 30 miles away. The overhead luggage tracks popped up and suitcases were coming out. Things were flying. Very scary. A flight attendant injured. She was on the floor, bleeding all over from the head. Essentially, we couldn't see out the front window. We lost our airspeed, and we could fly the plane. The plane was flying all right, but we had no indication of what 
speed, what altitude we were at. Controllers have to tell the pilot his position, guide him in. 7.35 p.m., 17 minutes after the terror began, the plane lands safely. There'll be another plane up here, and we'll be continuing on to Chicago. You flying it? I'm flying it. Great. We'll be continuing on to Chicago, and I do apologize for the delay. Okay. Only two injuries and no deaths, catastrophe avoided. And Benton West praised tonight as the hero... Now, Captain West will tell his harrowing story to federal air safety investigators who want to know why the plane flew into the hailstorm in the first place. Until we landed. Bob Orr, CBS News, Washington. Okay. Well, that last bit was very telling. I didn't know there was going to be some hail there in that really severe thunderstorm. That'll be clear air hail, will it? <laughs> There were no clouds around. We were in clear air. We didn't know where the hail came from. The NTSB report uh, talks about all these different, they got all the data from radar and everything else, and there there was no clear air. <laughs> he just, <laughs> yeah. he just picked uh, like the, the softest spot between some severe cells, Yeah, about ten a 10-mile 10 gap. Yeah. It's not going to work. <laughs> no. No. Anyway, I mean, it was frightening. I, I still remember, you know, sitting there on the ground, looking out the window, going, I mean, it's just all black, and the radar was just red. And we were just like, can you believe this guy is actually going to take off and fly right up toward that stuff? And, uh, yeah. Well, okay. he was lucky Dana wasn't sitting beside him. <laughs> Dana would have knocked him out. Yeah, that's true. And he should have been knocked out. <laughs> yeah, well, crazy, crazy. So I didn't mean for it to take up so much time here, but that just reminded me. I thought it was an interesting Oh, it was fascinating, incident. Jeff. But yeah. it, it's incredible how the news media can turn someone into a hero. A hero. A hero, yeah. Well, well that's, that's Greek yeah. for hero. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> into a hero. And then, uh, of course, a couple of days later, they'll be slanging him because they found out the real reason. I yeah. wonder if there was any repercussion. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, there you go. Uh, Airtran Flight 426. And as uh, somebody, Michael Lothrop, in the uh, in the uh, chat room mentioned, uh, there is a comment on the YouTube video, uh, supposedly from a family member, that uh, that just a few years after this incident, that uh, uh, Benton West ended up uh, dying in a car accident, tragically. Uh, oh, Liz, you're so funny. Amazing. He was hailed as a hero. Well, very good. <laughs> wow. And Miami Hicks says everyone uh, hugging him while a real lab geek would stand in line to slap him. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, as a passenger, you really don't know what all the details are and what, you know, what they were seeing and what they knew before they flew into that thing. You could only and go so by I, what you assume happened. Yeah. And, and so you're, you're thinking, wow, we went through something and, and it's amazing we're still alive. So I could see that, uh, you know, that natural reaction to say, well, this guy must be the one of the best pilots in the world and he's a hero and blah, 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 not knowing that. Basically, they that he almost killed them all. So yeah, I mean, you, you have to you, to a certain extent, you have to say, well, having put himself in that situation with a with a badly damaged aircraft uh, with bits going down engines, so one of the engines probably wasn't working very well. He probably would have lost airspeed, uh, and he may have uh, had an erroneous altitude as well. I guess you have to give him a certain element of credit for getting the aircraft back safely, but. Yes. But there's yeah. a huge but in there. You right. Know, he I mean, that's put himself in that situation, first of all. Also, like the uh, the Air Transat A330 uh, incident where the captain directed the first officer to open up the fuel cross feeds. 
and basically dumped all the fuel out of the airplane and they were a glider uh, going fly uh, landing in the uh, you know, what are those called the Portugal Portuguese islands out there the Azores uh, yeah the Azores yes yes uh, and everybody was hailing him I mean he did a, a great piece of flying to get that airplane on the ground oh, without yeah. any power but he's the one that caused the whole thing to begin with I mean not not real I mean not completely but uh, no he had a fuel leak, but he would he could have landed with one engine still operating. Yes, uh, and flown in there in a controlled manner if he'd isolated the tanks, and rather than feeding all his fuel into the tank that was leaking. Yes, <laughs> yeah, yep, just squirted it all out. Exactly. Yeah, so, but there for the grace of God. Go. Yep, yep, yeah. Ho- hopefully the aviation gods won't uh, you know pay me back for you know pointing. Well, out I've only some got of the two errors. years left to go. Yeah, How about you, Jeff. A little over six. You know, they've got plenty of time for you. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> All right. Well, with that, you know, hey, something very important to mention here. Um, Maine man Micah is celebrating a birthday today. Ah, brilliant. So we want to say happy birthday. Happy birthday, and Micah. We should probably sing happy birthday to you. Happy, happy birthday, birthday to you. you. Happy, happy birthday, birthday, dear Micah. Happy, happy birthday, birthday to you. you. Hey, that actually worked out pretty well. Not a little latency. <laughs> wow. Excellent. Thank you, and sir. May you have many more, old chap. And, and many more. Yeah, All right, Micah. So I hope you're having a great day. And, uh, you know, you're a big part of our APG community. And uh, and we, uh, we were, I wish we were there to... Drink a nice cold one with you and toast your anniversary yeah. of your birth. But I will sup a lukewarm uh, IPA in on your behalf. Oh, it's only lukewarm? Yeah, I, I had a quick dash over. Yeah, it's, it's not very cold, but there you go. It'll do. Yeah. Did you notice that uh, David in the chat room, somebody boot him out of there, please. Yeah. He's uh, so, criticizing uh, Liz, Liz, Liz is pretty tough on, on, <laughs> on trolls. Kidding. David, you can stay. You're on, you're on probation. Just letting you know. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I know. It's it, actually Trent. Interestingly, that song. Uh, I think it was last year or sometime, or maybe two years ago. Uh, there was a ruling that said that uh, that the Happy Birthday song is no longer protected by copyright. So you can sing it all you want. There you go. Even when it's not on your birthday. Even when it's not your birthday. Okay. I think now it's time for us to continue with, speaking of copyright violations, the Coffee Fund. Johnny, how much more coffee? No thanks. I love coffee, I love tea. I love the Java Java and it loves me. Coffee and tea and the Java and me. A cup, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup. Love Java, sweet and hot. Well, perhaps I should talk about the coffee fund instead of singing the entire Java Jive. The coffee fund is your way to contribute to the show in a financial manner if uh, you have the resources to do so. And you can learn about how to do that by going over to airlinepilotguy.com slash coffee. Pretty clever, huh? And there you'll find information about the Coffee Fund Classic Method. 
onion and a raw one. Sorry. Later, percolator. Okay. Um, let's see. Where was I? Oh, since the last show, we have uh, a contribution via the Coffee Fund Classic Method via PayPal. Donald Ovell. And uh, the other way to become part of the Coffee Fund Cadre is the uh, to become a patron at patreon.com. And since the last show, no new patrons, but that's okay. We have plenty of room for anybody who wants to sign up to become a patron of the show. Again, information about all this you can find at airlinepilotguy.com slash coffee. Become part of the Coffee Fund Cadre. They're a great group of people. start with the first item in the news folder, EasyJet pilot convicted for flying under the influence of ecstasy. A 49-year-old EasyJet pilot was handed a 12-month suspended prison sentence after he admitted that taking ecstasy caused him trouble in landing a plane in Paris. The Cratel, I'm not sure how you pronounce that, the Criminal Court of France on Friday banned the man from piloting and handed him a 12-month suspended prison sentence. In May, he recounted his troubles landing a plane at Paris Airport Orly the day after he had taken a third of an ecstasy pill. During the hearing, the police disclosed a telephone conversation recorded without the pilot's knowledge, saying, quote, I had little sweats. I did not feel very well. I did, I did anything on an approach. That doesn't make any sense, actually. Worries the pilot. In court, the pilot said his actions were an inexcusable error, adding that he had been confident that the side effects of the drug would disappear after two hours. EasyJet said in a press release, disciplinary procedures are in progress against its employee. The safety of passengers and the crew of EasyJet is our number one priority, and we have a zero-tolerance approach to drugs and alcohol. So, I'm not sure what ecstasy actually does to a person who has taken it do you captain it and uh, why well, would you know that no, well i haven't taken it but uh, <laughs> i i believe it it affects the the brain in a similar way to a lot of drugs so it's a feeling of euphoria a feeling of great energy um and uh so and it you know allows you to you know stay up a lot later than you would have done normally so uh you know in a lot of respects it might be similar to uh you know smoking a joint or having some beers or or whatever but um the trouble is that uh, most of these uh drugs uh, are not regulated in any form or manner they they obviously 
hit the streets at different strengths uh, and um, from different producers. There's no way to really to know the strength, even if you've got a, a portion of a pill. And what the hell he thought he was uh, doing in a responsible job like ours, taking anything like that, I don't know. So uh, I'd have him out in his ear. In fact, I'd have him in prison, but that's just my point of view. Um, uh, I don't think there's any excuse at all for behavior like that but perhaps i'm an old bit of an old school like that yeah <laughs> oh neville he's a funny guy making all kinds of interesting comments in the chat room <laughs> <laughs> oh really folks uh if you have a chance uh and you follow us on twitter or if you have one of the apps and you receive the push notification when we're going to be recording the show live and you're able to uh, join us as we do this you really will have a great time uh, being in the chat room and <laughs> taking part in all the uh, frivolity. Uh, yeah, Nev, Nev's not going to be there for much longer. <laughs> I'm going to wield the spanner in a minute and kick him out. No, 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 no. <laughs> Unless he's replaced by uh, Mrs. Nev, and then I'd say, okay. Oh, fair enough. Yeah, yeah absolutely. But funny enough, uh, my uh, current, the FO with me on this trip, uh, um, comes from an airline very similar to EasyJet. And uh, he was aware of this, and he asked me if I knew about it. And uh, I said no. Um, but um, he, he wasn't really able to add anything more than this story does. But when he said that this bloke had been taking ecstasy and then going flying, I'm going, what? I mean, I wouldn't really, even take yeah. it to begin with because I just don't like putting anything in my body, like chemicals, except for this chemical well, i don't know exactly alcohol how. is a is a true and tried and tested <laughs> yes. uh, we all kind of understand the effects because uh, it's been around since the dawn of man so it's it's not like you know something and, and what's more you know you, i know i'm taking six percent here so i have a pretty good idea what effect it'll have and how quickly it'll be out of my system again and that tomorrow morning i'll be uh not that i'm flying tomorrow morning i'm not flying till late tomorrow that i'll be fine and fit to fly which you can't be the same uh said for taking what is effectively an illegal drug that's bought under the counter yeah that is true that is true and th that just shows you how some people have a, a different um i don't know appreciation of the job that we hold which um you know we wouldn't uh, think of doing anything that would threaten it yeah, well, I'm sorry, but I have very little patience. Yes, and that reminds me of this. I have very little patience for stupidity. Wow, Jeff, you found a sound effect just like that. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> it's absolutely Without incredible. Without Dr. Steph's help, even. Ah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, by the way, Dr. Steph is not with us today because she is in flight. Um, I think when we recorded last, she was in flight going down to Costa Rica and now she's in flight coming back from Costa Rica. But uh, oh, she's not she jumping straight to Berlin from Costa Rica. She's coming home first. Is she? She's coming home first, and then she'll right. be going in September, I believe, to uh, to Berlin. Oh, okay. So, and uh, Dana apparently is uh, having a little bit of trouble uh, on the Harley. I think it's overheating or something, and uh, he's made it out to California in the Yosemite area, I guess, and. He said, I think his Harley was built by Boeing, wasn't it? <laughs> Shut up. 
<laughs> All right. Um, let's move on with uh, this. Chris, uh, uh, the guru, uh, sent in this news item, and uh, it's a regarding severe turbulence on American Airlines flight leaves 10 injured uh, via Fox News here. Uh, 10 people were hospitalized on Saturday after an American Airlines flight heading to Philadelphia experienced severe tur- turbulence with nearly 300 people on board. Uh, they were heading from to Philadelphia Airport after departing from Athens, Greece, when it briefly encountered severe turbulence just before it landed, the airline sta- said in a statement to uh, Fox affiliate uh, Channel 29. The seatbelt sign was on at the time. Three passengers and seven crew members were transported to a local hospital for evaluation. We are taking care of our passengers and our crew members at this time and want to thank our team members for keeping our passengers uh, safe. And passenger Ian Smith told WPVI, it was 30 minutes before landing when the flight attendants told everyone to get in their seats. 30 minutes out, they were giving us our drinks. The flight attendants were in the last couple of rows when they said, fasten your seatbelts. And then they said for the flight attendants to get to their seats. And they didn't even have time. It started shaking. Then it took a big drop. Babies screaming. People in front of us hitting the ceiling. A passenger said the turbulence lasted for about 15 seconds. The flight landed safely just after 3 p.m. And this was yesterday. And uh, took a little shot. Looked this up on flightaware.com. And uh, Captain Nick, uh, you can see the, uh, the uh, radar uh, depiction. And uh, it could be a little bit off because FlightAware kind of averages the uh, radar returns at, you know, for the flight. Uh, so I'm not sure if this is the act- actual depiction. If it is the actual depiction of the flight path through the severe weather, I'd say I know why they, they experience severe turbulence. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's, it's a bit difficult because uh, uh, this is a 2D picture. Mm-hmm. Um, as we know, it depends really on what height you could enter, because that could actually be some of that could be one under them if they mm-hmm. were at cruising altitude. Uh, and uh, so, you know, there might have been clear air and they might be doing just clipped the top of a, a little bubble. Uh, and uh, it did that to them. But it doesn't look very friendly, does it? No, it doesn't. Uh, doesn't look pleasant at all. But uh, anyway, thank you, Chris, for that little piece of news uh let's see oh remember uh was it earlier this year i think in maybe january let me see i'm quickly trying to look at the date of this original accident no it was uh, october 27th of last year um a an eastern airlines boeing 737-700 the new eastern airlines uh there uh, it was a charter flight uh carrying uh, the uh vice presidential nominee Oh, I remember that. Ran off the runway, didn't Ran it? off the runway, yeah. Uh, they just came up with their, um, what do they call this, their factual report, not their final final report. And uh, let's see. Let me just uh, talk a little bit about something here that uh, uh, may have been the reason why they went off the end of the runway. Uh, let's see. The aircraft performed the approach on autopilot. And becoming visual with the approach lights, the first officer disconnected the autopilot at 300 feet. Immediately after the autopilot was disconnected, the aircraft began to veer above the glide path. And by the way, that's not always very uh, unusual for that to happen. When the airplane is tracking the glide slope and then you take over visually, uh, the natural tendency is to make an adjustment to the 
and you, what you you really shouldn't do that. I mean, the airplane's probably flying the exact rate of descent that you need to, uh, you know, touch down on the runway at the at the touchdown zone. But it's just a natural thing that we have to actually fight against the urge to want to pick, pick the nose up a little bit, not your own nose, but the aircraft's pitch, and uh, and ends up kind of shifting your aim point a little bit longer. Um, so that's something we we are aware of and we have to fight against, and it's especially true for a, a shorter runway, such as the runways at uh, LaGuardia. Anyway, so uh, the uh, aircraft started to veer above the glide path. The NTSB wrote that the aircraft crossed the threshold at a height consistent with the threshold crossing height of the vertical glide slope indicator. So that's actually uh, pretty good. You know, they uh, were following the vertical the, the PAPI system, the Precision Approach Path Indicator, which was not coincident with the glide slope beam. After the automated 20 call, the captain called down. Following the 10 automated call, the captain called down, 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 your 3,000 feet remaining. The aircraft touched down. No call out of spoilers or reverse thrust occurred after touchdown. The flight data recorder data suggested the aircraft crossed the runway threshold at 66 feet, and a 750 foot per minute rate of descent. About 2,500 feet past the runway threshold, the rate of descent had decreased to zero. In other words, they were they leveled off a little bit. The aircraft finally touched down 4,242 feet past the what? runway threshold. The runway, no, no problem though, because the runway is 7,001 feet long. <laughs> More than halfway down the runway, Jeff. Yeah, less than uh, 3,000 feet remaining. Uh, God. Yes, the captain extended the speed brakes manually because they were uh, written up, by the way. Uh, the auto uh, speed brakes were not working. So the captain uh, extended them manually 4.5 seconds after main gear touchdown. So um, you know, there was a little bit of delay before he got the spoilers out. And if you don't have the spoilers out and the lift is not spoiled from the wings, then you don't have all the weight down on the main gear for the brakes to have any effect. Maximum reverse thrust was commanded a further 1,650 feet down the runway past the touchdown point. The aircraft ex- uh, entered the EMAS, uh, which is the uh, Engineered Materials Arresting System, at about 35 knots over ground. The aircraft sustained blade, blade damage to the left engine due to ingestion of the EMAS materials. The tires received cuts in addition to normal wear. EMAS materials were found in various locations of the aircraft. Wire support damage was found on the gear struts. There was damage to the thrust reverser sleeves and blocker doors. Uh, Let's see. The NTSB reported that according to computations, the aircraft could have stopped with all gear remaining within the runway surface had the spoilers been extended within one second after touchdown and maximum reverse thrust been commanded within two seconds after touchdown. Burn. (laughs) Yeah. Um, oh, and then they they put another comment in here. Uh, the NTSB annotated that the CVR, the cockpit voice recorder, revealed that below 10,000 feet, there had been discussions amongst the flight crew not pertinent to the flight in violation of the sterile cockpit environment. And I have okay. to admit, occasionally yeah. we, <laughs> I, I break that rule myself. Um, There's still a long bit of the flight to go, and it yeah. gets hopefully, if you been chatting away it's very hard to just sort of dry up when you're having a quiet period and yeah i don't yeah. think that's really a no, I think that's relevant. significant factor in this accident 
So, but uh, no, the significant factor is that uh, it didn't sound like it was a particularly well set up approach. Having said that, he looks like he got it together uh, as they came over the threshold. And I don't know if it's the same for you, uh, Jeff, but for us, the, the real cue, if you're if you're settle on a nice final part of the approach is that you get the 50 foot call out just as you come over the piano keys uh, for us uh, and uh, if you and 750 feet a minute sounds a little fast but you know if you flare well enough you you can cushion that it sounds to me like uh, he just flared a little hard in to the point where he leveled it off and uh, I, I I feel a little sorry for the captain because it's really tough being in that position where you want the guy to finish the landing. You don't really want to have to take control and do a go around, which is what it may require. Um, but, you know, eventually uh, when, you, when you're when halfway down the runway, on what is not a huge runway, you've really got to exercise your command. That's why you're sitting in the left-hand seat and that's why everyone behind you is trusting you. Um, you've got to take control and go, no, this ain't going to work. Either you fly it on yourself or better still in this case to a go around. Exactly. Because you can. You can always. You can always go around. If it don't look right, coming down. Don't wait until your sides may be sliding on the ground. You can always go around. Yeah, and I, I I feel sad because you know for the rest of their career both of them will go if only we'd gone around. Well, and uh, interesting, uh, there somebody made a comment uh, that, that's not included in the Evernote uh, folder, Nick. Uh, but if you go to the actual um, link to this on uh, aviationherald.com. Uh, according to Mike Charlie, um, he made a comment on Wednesday, August second. The CVR transcript included the following, quote, my career just ended, one of the pilots said. The other responded, mine too. Pilot should never, ever say something like that. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. Uh, yeah. I, it's an understandable reaction to what was they both realized was just a monumental error on yeah. their part. I mean, to be fair, they they only hit the the uh, EMAS at thirty five knots. Mm -hmm. It wasn't a major overrun. Uh, everyone walked off the airplane. Uh, but seriously, that's a, that's quite a large error in judgment for both of them. There. Yes, yes. But these things happen every now and then. And as you said earlier, by the grace of God, go yeah. I or whatever. At times, you realize that. We, we, we make light of it, but it, at times it's not an easy job. Yep. A lot of, uh, a lot of threats out there that, uh, you know, sometimes we uh, don't pay close attention to, and we always yeah. should. Yes, this was the Eastern Airlines flight, uh, Jen. Okay. Now, I think it's time for us to go on, move on to the best part of the show, your feedback. Captain, incoming message. Okay, just quickly, uh, on a show, I don't know how long ago it was, we talked about the uh, the gravestones embedded in the runway at the Savannah International Airport. And uh, not long after that, Bill Heron uh, wrote in, that he sent this in, 
uh, June 15th. Um, must be something about Georgia, he says. Uh, then he has a link to a WSB TV uh, article or actually video talking about um, a, a property seller in uh, Cumming, Georgia, uh, Mathis Airport in Cumming, uh, where uh, tombstones were dug up, I guess, and uh, removed, and they were not happy about that, and they were he was trying to, I guess, cover up the uh, the fact that he had, um, you know, I guess tried to get rid of evidence that the uh, tombstones or the grave sites were there. But uh, I'll put a link to that in the show notes if you want to uh, read that and listen to that or see the video yourself. Thank you, Bill. Uh, no disrespect, uh, disrespect to Bill, but uh, I see it's sent from an IBM Model 29. Is that the 29th computer that IBM made? I don't know. I don't know what a Model 29 is, no. If, if it's still going after all these years, it's probably worth a bit of money, Bill. You could probably put it in a museum. I don't know. Yeah. Do, do IBM still make computers? I don't think they do, actually. Yeah. Yeah, well, very that's good. a good question. I'd love to know what computer that was, Bill. Hmm. I'm probably going to get a very rude reply. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, you uh, you will. And uh, again, that's uh, Captain Nick um, <laughs> yeah. at gmail.com. Yeah. <laughs> I don't no, know. I've got big shoulders. Okay. Uh, well, moving on. Thanks, Bill, for uh, for that. Again, we'll put that link in the show notes so you can all uh, look at it. Um, Liz wrote in. Liz Piper. You may have heard of her. I hope you had a wonderful vacation. Um, was following her on social media and uh, looks like she had a great relaxing vacation. Uh, up there in Canada. Uh, she says, um, contaminated air. Interesting article. Would love you and the crew to discuss sometime. And so this article from BBC.com, flight safety degraded by contaminated air. And an air crew who took part in the research, let's see, well, let me back up. Flight safety could be degraded because pilots are breathing contaminated air, a study has warned. Researchers at the University of Stirling said that there was a clear link between being exposed to the air on planes and a variety of health issues. Air crew who took part in the research reported headaches and dizziness as well as breathing and vision problems. The air on planes can become contaminated by engine oil and other aircraft fluids. Uh, unfiltered breathing air is supplied to airplane cabins via the engine compressor. And uh, goes on to talk about this uh, the study uh, published in the World Health Organization journal Public Health Panorama. And it said it was the first of its kind to look in depth at the health of aircrew who are suspected of exposure to contaminated air during their careers. And it goes on to talk about uh, the various symptoms that uh, uh, some of the subjects uh, displayed and the fact that, um, you know, well, I don't want to go into all the details, but uh, we'll put that link into the show notes. We've talked about something. I think they've they branded this aerotoxic syndrome and uh, talked about uh, several and I guess it was last year or maybe even longer uh, where I got a video from an organization that is trying to, you know, bring this this concern to light uh, that there are people that are being uh, their health is being effective negatively from constant exposure to uh, toxic air in aircraft, because in 90 something percent of airplanes out there flying today, the air that's used for pressurizing and air conditioning the airplane is uh, sucked from the 
bleed system, bleeding air from the high pressure compressor sections. And it's possible that, uh, you know, you could uh, be exposed if there was a leak or something in somewhere in that chain that you could be breathing some toxic uh, gases and that kind of thing. So, yeah, it's interesting. The 787, of course, has an electric um, pressurization system. So mm -hmm. it's you can imagine the little compressor pump that pumps up your car tires. It's, it's probably bigger like, than that, though. <laughs> Reckon? Yeah, I'm not so sure. But anyway, it's uh, it just it just takes in air from uh, the atmosphere around uh, the the clean air outside and just um, uh, basically pumps it into the airplane instead of using the engines. Now, actually, that can be more efficient than bleeding air out of the engines because when you do that, you're reducing the efficiency of the engines, which means you have to run them a little higher RPM, which is moving uh, using more fuel. So not quite so clever, but they've also got around the problem of uh, of these this oil leaking. Now the the oil um, is you know it's like Medicar oil. It's it's not designed to be breathed. It's it's got some pretty evil chemicals in there, and um, of course uh, when the oil is uh, there in the bearings of the engine, if it happens to leak out of the bearings and get into the air around it then it's likely that it will be sucked into the uh, air conditioning system. Uh, for the average passenger, it's not really a problem because they don't get exposed to it very often. And to be fair, the, the vast majority of aircrew, um, both in the cabin area and the pilots, uh, don't have, suffer any symptoms. It's only, it only seems to be affecting a relatively small number. So I don't know whether some people uh, perhaps are more prone to reacting to this, or perhaps they have got a problem that uh, is exacerbated by it. Um, the problem is that there are so many um, toxic materials in our just everyday lives, whether it be walking down the street and ingesting fumes from cars or I don't know, from uh, various other environmental um, parts of our life, areas of our life, uh, people are going to find it very hard to single out just one aspect. I, I suppose uh, it's a, if eventually you say, right, well, the, all these people of this particular occupation are suffering this problem, then uh, they're going to eventually be able to make a really solid link and, um, you, know, you know, people will be able to take, engine manufacturers to court or whatever. But I, I'm not absolutely convinced that this is uh, a problem. Certainly, I, I've had it, been on aircraft that have suffered uh, oil leaks, and we've noticed it in the cabin, and uh, we've reported it, and uh, there was a significant effort made to both identify the aircraft and the engines that had problems, fix them, and also to take samples uh, and establish whether there was any serious health problem. Um, but uh, nothing, um, in my mind, as significant has ever come out, and certainly nothing proven. Uh, now, whether this, um, I've read the full report, I've only read the same thing you have, Jeff, which is basically this news article about it, whether this establishes a solid link or not, uh, it'll be interesting to see. Yeah, I agree. And I'm a little skeptical myself, because I've been doing this for 28 and a half years, and I you know, I, I know a lot of people that have been doing this job for quite, you know, decades, and none of them have suffered any of these symptoms or chronic health problems. So, as you mentioned, it does seem to affect a very small minority of people, and 
I think you might be able to say, well, you know, is that any different from the percentage that in the general population that suffer from these things? You know, so. uh, that's exactly right. So I, I'm yet to be convinced. Yeah, me too. I'm not saying that it isn't, you know, something going on there. And if it is, I'd certainly like to hear about it and want it to be fixed. But again, a little skeptical uh, regarding this whole thing. Yeah. Oh, can you hear that? I do. Yeah. Must be. Uh, They're coming to get me. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> the men in the white coats. The one, uh, the name of the, t- the sh- title of the show, the one where the the one where Captain Nick was arrested. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah, okay. Well, I'll just keep my head down. I think we'll be all right. Okay, good. Duck. Uh, in the chat room, I noticed they were talking about, hey, have you have you heard about this um, this uh, situation? Actually, maybe it was a different one that they were talking about, but uh, this um, it reminded me of a a situation from uh, Stewart. So I, I went way down the list, um, Captain Nick, uh, about four from four or five. Well, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven from the bottom. Uh, Stewart sent this in. Okay. And he says, Dear Captain Jeff and APG crew, what do you make of this nonsense? Pretty outrageous that this particular flight crew could keep passengers on a hot plane instead of letting them off the aircraft and into the terminal, especially when the airport was ready for them with all facilities to assist. At what point does the airline management use common sense, if only to avert a PR disaster? I mean, forget about the passengers, but at least save your own reputation. So, who is to blame? The air crew for not doing anything on their own initiative? Or the airline management for not taking control. I don't see anyone buying pizza here. Maybe the 911 call was for pizza. So, uh, link to the article again. This is Stuart Thompson in Edmonton, uh, the uh, the one with the Scott accent, Scottish accent that I met in Terminal T in Atlanta. Uh, passengers call 911 after being trapped on grounded plane for six hours. This from the Daily Mail. Passengers were forced to call 911 when their flight was grounded at the Ottawa, Canada airport for six hours Monday night without air conditioning, causing at least one child to get sick. Now, I have to stop here. I doubt that it was without air conditioning. They were probably using their APU to power the air conditioning system, which may not have been able to keep the airplane as cool as desired based on the very warm weather conditions that night and the severe weather that they were experiencing in that area of the country. So, um, I, you know, I, I doubt that they had all air conditioning off. But, you know, I wasn't there, so maybe they did. Continuing with the article, Air Transat Flight 157 from Brussels was scheduled to land at Montreal at 3.15 p.m., but couldn't because of severe storms. After circling around Montreal for a few hours, the plane was diverted to Ottawa, where it landed around 5 p.m. Passengers say they were given little information about why they were grounded in the ensuing hours or how long they were going to be kept on the plane. At first, the air conditioning was kept on, but as the plane's fuel supply dwindled, the pilot shut off the power, cutting off the air conditioning and lighting. Oh, well, okay. I stand corrected. I guess maybe maybe they actually did turn off the air conditioning. Uh, that's not a good idea. Uh, let's see. With 336 passengers on board, the plane quickly heated up and passengers said it became hard to breathe. It was a nightmare, passenger Marianne Zahel told Global News. There were children crying. Some people had panic attacks and screamed, I need to get out. Uh, let's see. Laura Ma, another passenger, told CBC News that one child started puking. <laughs> well, that's not a good thing on a hot airplane. 
and people started losing their minds. Eventually, a passenger called 911, and paramedics responded to the airport bringing water, water bottles for the trapped passengers. Okay, so uh, I have a little bit of uh, audio to play on this. Uh, so let's see. The first one is this one here. So in the video there, everybody's standing up and they want everybody to take their seats so they can open up the doors of the airplane. They don't want anybody falling out because this is a, uh, I think it's an A300, not a 330. Um, so it's an older airplane, but uh, the door, you know, it's pretty high up uh, above the tarmac. So they don't want anybody falling out the doors, but they need to open up the doors to get some airflow in the airplane because it's obviously getting very, very hot. And then after the uh, uh, cabin crew heard that somebody had called 911, they made this announcement. Who called uh, 911 from this aircraft with the last four digits, 0403. I'm sure that they're going to uh, congratulate them for doing that. Not, I'm not sure what they were going to do <laughs> to the person who called 911. Did they really think that passenger was going to yeah, Okay, <laughs> It was me. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so apparently they're not very happy about the fact that somebody called, no, several actual, actually uh, called 911. Um, so uh, the, interestingly, the airport authority at Ottawa uh, tweeted that they uh, let this airline, Air Transat, know that they had a gate, and they, and in lieu of a gate, they also had air stairs that they could bring to the airplane and buses that were specifically set up for this kind of thing to take the passengers off the airplane and go through customs. So that, that's one of the problems with this uh, situation is it's flown overseas and all these passengers need to be cleared through customs, and I, I'm wondering if Air Transat uh, decided, you know what, that's going to be more hassle than it's worth, so let's just keep everybody on board the airplane. And apparently, uh, Canada doesn't have the same uh, tarmac rules that we have in the United States, and you know, huge fines for doing something like this. So basically, they held these passengers, you know, hostage on the on this airplane for, I think, five hours after they landed. So they they were on that airplane for quite quite some time. Oh, and if they turn the damned APU off, then it's going to be bloody miserable in the back. I, right? Yeah, yeah. So it, it was kind of like a finger pointing thing. The uh, Air Transat folks are saying, uh, "No, uh, they did not tell us that they had all these things available to get the passengers off, and uh, they told us that we had to keep everybody on the airplane." But again, the airport th- authority is saying, "Oh no, we told them." that they could uh, deplane passengers. But, you know, that's one of those things. This is one of those situations where being a captain, this is where you make your money. And you have to start managing the situation and doing the right thing. And it may not be exactly what the management of your company wants you to do, but you have uh, the obligation and responsibility for the uh, safety and care of your passengers. And it can be a tough uh, decision to make whether or not to uh, you know, keep everybody on board or actually deplane them and 
cause, you know, endless problems after the fact. Yeah. I mean, if, if we had, you know, the ability to uh, read the future, it would be easy because I've no doubt this captain probably thought his delay was going to be relatively short. And yet things kept happening that extended it and extended it. And uh, he was probably still in the mindset of, God, if only we can get off in this time, then I've still got enough duty time to complete the trip and uh, et cetera. And, uh, you know, it's very easy to get in that situation where the time is ticking by and you haven't actually made a decision. And uh, Whereas if you'd right at the beginning gone, all right, Let's get them off. Uh, we'll let everyone cool down, go to the terminal, uh, have some water, whatever. Uh, and then uh, we'll get the flight set up again. And when we're 30 minutes from departing, we'll bring them all back on again. Yeah. But uh, he probably wasn't confident that would happen. He probably thought if he deplaned everyone, that might well be, be the end of the trip, in which case he's got another problem, hotels and mm -hmm. everything else, getting resting his crew and all that stuff. Uh, it, it can be complicated, but to a certain extent if you're in that situation you just got to take it by the balls and uh, run with it because uh, you know no one else is gonna no one else is there on the spot uh, and the captain has to make the decisions and it sounds like this guy you know might just have been uh, hoping for the best and ended up with the worst yeah and i think that they were not the only air transit flight that was delayed for many hours on the tarmac at uh, ottawa and uh, interesting looking at some of the um, the tweets uh, from some of the passengers. Apparently, there was a nav geek back there and knew how to look up eat, uh, METARs and uh, and uh, terminal area forecasts. And uh, this guy's saying uh, the the METAR, TAF, and GFA showed clear of towering cumulus two and a half hours ago. And then he put in uh, his hashtag is lost client. <laughs> <laughs> not a happy person and apparently it was not the only uh i think i just mentioned that the only airplane that it, uh, it, uh, experienced an extended delay that day so anyway um lots of finger pointing i'm hoping that they'll do the right thing uh to compensate the passengers for their inconvenience and uh you know like give them refund their money perhaps i don't know it's interesting. If the, I wonder what would have happened if that passenger had not called 911. Would they have just had to sit there and sweat? I guess. I guess. Yeah. That was not a a very uh, a very nice situation going on there. No, the, not that I'd recommend that people suddenly go, well, I'm fed up with this delay. I'm going to call 911. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, yeah. that's not the ideal solution, folks. It usually ends up with a bigger delay than you've would have had otherwise that is true that is true well let's see how long have we been going here um probably close well more than an hour and getting close to an hour and a half i think um i think you know what this would be a good time for this week's installment of probably the best thing on the show which is of course the old pilot's plane tales The Old Pilot's Plane Tales, 7543. Go to the homepage on the website of a certain company and a large number jumps out at you. It doesn't move very often, which is a good thing. The number represents the total number of lives saved by their product. 
and it has been growing slowly since 1934. From the day I first started training to fly to the day I retired from the Royal Air Force, I sat on a Martin Baker ejector seat every time I took to the air, and I did so with the confidence that one day I might ask it to save my life, and trusting that it would. Luckily for me, that moment never came, but for 7,543 aviators from 93 air forces, their Martin Baker seat worked as advertised. One of the very latest lives saved was that of a Pakistani Air Force Mirage 3 pilot, whose aircraft suffered a technical malfunction during a routine training flight on the 2nd of May 2017. Martin Baker is, of course, not the only ejector seat manufacturer, nor was it the first. The first system, back in 1910, used a bungee elastic, but the first patented ejector system was created by the British railway engineer Everard Coulthrop. A close personal friend of Charles Rolls, of Rolls-Royce fame, he watched his friend die in a biplane crash. The tragedy inspired him to develop first a parachute, and then in 1916 he added a patent for an escape system that when activated tilted the pilot's seat backwards, and then with a blast of compressed air would deploy the parachute which would pluck the plucky wearer out of the aircraft. Coulthrop wasn't the lone inventor working on such a system. Quite independently, the Germans and the Swedish were coming up with versions of their own. The first German system was fitted to the Heinkel HE280 prototype jet fighter, built in 1940 and powered by compressed air, the seat that is, not the aircraft. Test pilot Helmut Schenk became the first person in history to use an ejector seat in anger when the controls of his aircraft became iced up. The Swedish seat was developed by Saab, who first used compressed air, but then moved to a gunpowder-powered seat developed by Bofors in 1943. It was the post-war development of high-speed jets that really prompted work on an efficient and safe ejector seat, and the US Army Air Force experimented with downwards ejecting systems operated by a spring. However, it was the work of Sir James Martin that led the field. Sir James, originally from Ireland, was originally an aircraft engineer who worked with Captain Valentine Baker to build aircraft during the Second World War. The MB-3 was the prototype for a heavily armed high-speed and manoeuvrable fighter which held six 20mm cannons. During a test flight with Baker at the controls, the 2,000-horsepower Napier engine failed. A nearby farmer, John Thornton, witnessed the accident. Two fields from where Morris and A were harvesting, there was a stack of newly threshed straw. The MB3 hit this and burst into flames. Bunny Winter, the bailiff of Cold Arbor Farm, beat us to the crash, but we were too late to rescue Captain Baker in the fierce fire. Martin felt the loss of his friend and business partner deeply, and it fired him in a passion to devote his life to the safety of aircrew. For the rest of his life, he worked on the development of aircraft ejector seats and retained the name of his friend, Captain Baker, in the company name as a tribute. 
The first live firing of a Martin Baker seat was by fitter Bernard Lynch from the back of a Gloucester Meteor in 1946, and shortly after, the first American, First Sergeant Larry Lambert, safely completed a test. Lynch demonstrated the seat publicly at the Daily Express Air Pageant in 1948, and the seats began to be fitted to standard equipment from the late 40s. The early seats, such as those I sat in when I was flying the Jet Provost and the Hawker Hunter, used a solid propellant charge, which was located in a telescoping tube attached to the seat. The Mark I was little modified from the test model that Lynch used over 30 times. It had a simple lever that raised and lowered the seat pan to accommodate different heights of pilot, footrests and thigh guards to prevent the legs from being forced apart by the wind blast as they left the aircraft. However, they required the pilot to manually jettison the canopy, position himself correctly, fire the seat, and once clear of the aircraft, release his seat straps. Once the pilot fell clear of the seat, then he could manually activate his parachute by pulling the D-ring. A number of fatalities occurred when the pilot fell unconscious or ejected too low to carry out all the actions. So Martin set about improving and automating many of the manual functions required in the Mark I. The Mark II seat was a simple, automatic seat that also employed a drogue at the top, a personal parachute in a container in the seat back, and a dinghy pack within the seat base. The seat stabilising drogue that had been fixed at the top of the seat was now held in place by a scissor shackle. This shackle would release the drogue at a predetermined time and was used to pull out the main parachute after five seconds to allow for slowing from a high-speed injection and when below 10,000 feet. One of the most popular was the Mark IV seat, known as the Light Fighter, and there are over 700 still in service. It has currently saved over 1,200 lives. The Mark IV was developed to meet the needs of weight reduction as well as improved efficiency to suit a more modern generation of fast jet aircraft. It was fitted to 34 different jets, including the Etondar, Magister, Hunter, Jaguar, Griffin, Alphajet, Lightning, Civix and Buccaneer, Jet Provost and Nat, just to name a few. The seat was rated to operate from above 50,000 feet and 600 knots. It was still a pure gun-powered ejector seat, using one primary and two secondary cartridges, and it employed what were by now the classic Martin Baker sequencing system. The seat could be fired by either pulling the primary face screen handle or the seat pan handle that nestled in between the pilot's thighs. The face screen handle was a double loop of black and yellow striped rubber-covered wire that, as it was pulled down over the face, deployed a canvas face blind to protect the pilot's handsome visage and steely-eyed glint. The first operation was canopy jettison, which was usually achieved by a pair of explosive pistons that fired under the canopy rail, lifting the front into the slipstream to be carried away by the airflow. Once clear, the ejection gun fired and the seat started moving up the guide rails. After a few inches of movement, the self-contained emergency oxygen bottle tripped, the aircrew services, radio cable, oxygen, anti-G, etc., 
disconnected and the leg restraints were pulled taut. The leg restraints were cords attached on one end to the cockpit floor and on the other by quick release fasteners to the front of the seat. The fighter pilots who wore these special gaiters just below their knees and which clinked together as they walked separated themselves from the less glamorous pilots who flew helicopters or transport aircraft by the noise, akin to the sound of a gunfighter's spurs. On strapping themselves to their bang seats, they would thread the leg restraints through the metal rings, safe in the knowledge that on ejection their long muscular limbs would be prevented from twisting into a mess of shattered bone when they hit a 600-knot gale. As the seat continued to rise out of the cockpit, a static line would initiate a 0.5 second time delay before, after clearing the aircraft, a drogue gun would fire a large metal slug, which pulled out a 22-inch drogue. This, in turn, pulled out the full 5-foot seat stabilising drogue, which orientated and slowed the seat to a sensible speed. If the ejection was above 10,000 feet, the pilot would have time to watch his crippled jet do its falling leaf imitation as the seat descended, quite smartly, towards the earth below until the barostat measured the height. On reaching 10,000 feet, the release unit would start. If the ejection was below 10,000 feet, a G-restrictor would prevent operation of the time release unit until the seat slowed, whereupon 1.5 seconds later, a plunger released the scissor shackle to transfer the pull of the drogue to the lifting lines of the parachute, pulling it from the seat. Simultaneously, the harness and leg lines were released, and under his pretty Irvin 24-foot diameter parachute, the pilot would be lifted away from his wonderful but now useless ejector seat. The final gift his seat would give was his seat pack, which, when a 12-foot long lanyard attached to his life preserver came taut, was plucked from the falling seat and dangled below him, containing his rather ominously coffin-shaped dinghy. The act of tugging this personal survival pack lanyard also activated his locator beacon, so that now anyone on the distress frequency could locate the down pilot. Needless to say, this function would be deactivated when over enemy territory. In the unlikely event that the pilot thought his Martin Baker miracle had failed him, his seat had both an emergency oxygen bottle firing handle and a manual separation handle. Pulling the manual separation handle fired a cartridge that operated gas-powered guillotines, severing the parachute attachment lines, the linkage function then released to harness, the negative G-strap, personal equipment connector and his leg restraints. This allowed the disbeliever to fall free of the seat, whereupon he was now required to pull his own ripcord to open his parachute. The Mark IV was a long way from the final version of ejector seats to be made. The Mark V was introduced in 1957 to the States and saved 1,645 American lives from failing Crusaders, Phantoms, Intruders, Sky Rays, Sabres, Thunder Flashes, T-33s and the like. However, like the Mark IV, the Mark V was a 0-90 seat in that to achieve a successful ejection, the pilot could be at zero feet 
but only if he was doing at least 90 knots of forward speed. Not a lot of use if you were landing a Harrier vertically. The first seat that contained a rocket pack were the final versions of the Mark IV and V, which were renamed the Mark VI and VII. 1,500 of these seats are still in service in many countries around the world, and they served in the F-104, the F-8, the Phantom, Prowler, F-5 and F-14. They retained the telescopic ejection gun, but as the seat cleared the aircraft, a lanyard fired the multi-tubed rocket pack, which took over and continued to power the seat away from the aircraft. This improvement turned a 0-90 seat into a 0-0 seat. In other words, the seat would work stationary on the ground. Other modifications were introduced that lessened the chance of injury, such as a power retraction system. The speed of the seat would be negated by waiting for a canopy to jettison, so in the main, this and future seats would smash their way through the canopy using cutters on the top or miniature detonating cord would shatter the canopy as the seat passed through. A recent ejectee, apart from drinking heavily, could often be identified by the MDC splatter that the lead cover surrounding the explosive cord gave to any exposed skin, leaving a myriad of superficial cuts. Various other marks followed to suit lightweight aircraft to improve comfort and to suit changes in cockpit design. The Mark 10 was to equip the Tornado, Sea Harrier and Hawk, to name just a few. Improvements in the restraint were also introduced, including arm and helmet restraint. The Mark 14 seat is found in the F-18 Hornet, commonly known as the SJU-17 Alpha, and the NACES. And the Mark 16 is in the F-35, Eurofighter, T-38 and the Raphael. Martin Baker are now up to Mark 18. Of course, there are other seat manufacturers, such as the maker of the very sophisticated McDonnell Douglas Aces II. For a while, it would have been a Boeing ejector seat. Very appropriate, I feel, but it is now made by United Technologies Aerospace Systems. This seat equipped a whole generation of American F-series fighters and bombers, including the F-15, F-16, F-22, F-117, B-1 and B-2. However, the Aces 5 lost the chance to provide comfortable seating for F-35 pilots. A pilot who uses his seat in an emergency can join an exclusive club, and he will be recognised from his exclusive pin or the understated dark blue tie he wears, decorated with discreet red triangles, representing the danger ejector seat symbol. To read all of the members' stories, check out the Martin Baker website, but here are a few. Captain Jack Fair said, On December 28, 1974, at 19.05, on a Sunday morning, flying two F-4Es in an air-to-air scenario, we experienced a head-on, belly-to-belly mid-air collision. My airplane lost the complete tail section, afterburners, stab, and vertical tail. The collision was horrendous. After trying to recover, I looked in the centre mirror and saw only fire. I initiated immediate ejection with the lower handle. 
The collision, ejection and the opening shock were all tied together in a horrendous experience. All four crew member seats worked perfectly and none of us had any serious injuries. Nearly every day I thank God and Martin Baker for my life. The photo is my wife Milda and me as we celebrate every day of our lives together. Thanks, Martin Baker. Bill Thaler said, Thanks for being there when I needed you most. Lieutenant Colonel Kalo Manyaya wrote, I am forever grateful to you and indebted to Martin Baker for saving my life. Thank you. Frederick Hugler added, Thank you very much. Your company saved my life. I had a long career as a military pilot, vampire, venom, hunter, and as a captain for Swiss Air, ending on the MD-11 as the deputy chief pilot. Frederick ejected in 1965. Captain Brian Buse, Canadian F-18 display pilot, who suffered an engine failure at a critical part of his display at the 2010 Alberta International Air Show, wrote, I would like to thank Martin Baker for saving my life recently. I'm sitting here with my family because of the amazing performance of my seat. The accident happened on the 23rd of July 2010 at approximately 1810 Zulu. The jet developed a problem and I was forced to eject at around 30 metres. It was way too close, but the seat saved my life. Words cannot express how I feel right now, but thank you. I think that just about says it all. Well done, again. Well done. Um, wow, those things are pretty complicated devices. Uh, they are, but to actually, when you see one, they're incredibly simple. And uh, they rely on well-proven technology. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know... Uh, the the aces seat is is highly uh, automated um but highly complicated it tries to uh, use gyroscopes and electronics to sense lots of things martin baker sort of stuck with very simple devices uh, that uh, worked uh, almost every time. And when you think about it, most of the ejector seats uh, that are fitted to aircraft will never be used. Uh, but the one time then used, you need the technology to be absolutely fail-safe. Uh, and uh, generally speaking, uh, Martin Baker have managed to achieve that throughout their uh, experience. Uh, it's a fascinating company and a fascinating ethos they have. Um, and I think they uh, they have the right attitude towards it. You know, they um, they took it on as a almost as a passion um, that uh, uh, Martin took on after he, he watched his friend die, and um, that ethos is carried on throughout the company despite the fact that uh, they you know obviously are now a big multi million pound multi million dollar uh, company. Um, but um, you know, those of us who sit in their seats. Uh, I think most the the vast majority of us have a huge confidence in them. Uh, they're they're very good. Yeah, very good. And speaking of very good, actually better than very good, your plane tales, and uh, you always oh, uh, do such a masterful job with that. You're you're very kind. Uh, I think there was a little bit of background 
noise every now and again in that. So I do apologise. I did it after a dinner party when I had a little bit to drink. So I might have been a little clumsy. <laughs> Didn't hear anything. With my, <laughs> with my recording equipment, I try to get rid of most of it. Um, uh, the, I've just got so many stories about people who have ejected. I couldn't get them all in. Mm-hmm. But uh, the one I do want to tell you about is a guy called Cinders. Uh, he was called Cinders because his surname was Matt Syndicum. And uh, he was uh, the backseater, uh, and he was a great friend of mine um, in an F4. And um, they were coming in uh, as the wingman of the junior pilot, uh, and they had lost their main attitude indicator during a night uh, intercept sortie. So they uh, formated on their wingman, who led them in for a, um, a uh, an approach, basically uh, to get them so they could uh, were visual to so they could you know, wouldn't have any problems uh, landing the airplane. Uh, but uh, unfortunately, when the uh, pilot leading, who was a, a pretty inexperienced pilot, um, bro- uh, flew away from them, accelerated away from them, he didn't break away laterally. He just accelerated away ahead. And um, the pilot uh, in Matt's aircraft uh, hit the slipstream from the lead aircraft. So instead of just being able to land on an empty runway, as the leader climbed away and broke away to the left, he uh, ended up um, losing control of his aircraft. And uh, they they hit the ground and bounced. And at the arc of their big bounce, uh, they both decided to eject because the airplane hit the ground so hard. It was basically a, a, a flaming ball of wreckage now. Uh, and um, they in those days, we didn't have command eject in the Phantom. So that's when... You know, either one of you ejects, assuming you have it set that way, uh, then in a sequence, both of you will go. But you'll go at the correct timing. Uh, they just basically pulled their handles. And uh, they were very lucky in the fact that uh, the pilot went first because he was quickest. Matt followed him uh, so fast afterwards that he caught the um, the jetty flux from uh, the rocket pack of the pilot's seat. Uh, and... Uh, <laughs> When we all went to met, to see Cinders in uh, in a hospital, he had these these incredible red um, suntan <laughs> marks all over his face and wrists. Any exposed part of his skin had been, you know, sort of burnt like a suntan. And uh, he, he looked so funny. I mean, not kidding. He was sitting there, you know, just <laughs> all of it beat up because it's what it's like when you eject. I mean, most guys lose a couple of inches in height. Uh, vertebrae fractures are common. And uh, the spine is compressed so much, it rarely recovers. Um, but to see him sitting there in bed with all these kind of <laughs> red splotches, the shape of the kind of uh, where, where the, his mask and helmet didn't cover his face. <laughs> it was so funny. Is that we how did. he got the uh, nickname Cinder? Cinders? Well, no, it was just a, a happy coincidence. Because <laughs> okay. His surname was Syndicum. So ah, uh, okay. he was called Cinders. Uh, but uh, that one stuck, stuck with him now forever. And it became I'm, very appropriate. Absolutely, yeah. Great story. We're so glad he survived, yeah. Yes. Why, hello there. My name is Miami Hick, and I'm here to talk to you today about an embarrassing subject that no one likes to talk about, APG syndrome. Do you have a constant pain in your neck from always looking up at airplanes? Have you tried to grow your own Captain Jeff mustache? Do you think of Miami Rick every time you hear a cricket? Think of Captain Nick when you hear a frog croak. 
think of Dana whenever you eat Boston baked beans? Do you think of Dr. Steph whenever you get stuck with a needle? If you answered yes to any of these questions, then you are suffering from APG syndrome. We'll suffer no more. Introducing Go Around the Ceiling. With only 36 daily doses of an easy to swallow pill, you can be free of your symptoms with Go Around the Ceiling. Talk to your doctor today and find out if Go Around the Ceiling is right for you. Like all medicine, Go Around the Ceiling has side effects which include headache, nausea, vomiting, stomach bleeding, bleeding from the ears, nose, and eyes, uncontrolled diarrhea, stomach cramps, yellowing of the teeth, hair, and toenails, warts, hair loss, dry mouth, constipation, and stomach cramps. And I tried it the other day, and the uncontrollable diarrhea thing, that's true. Got to be careful with yeah. that medication. Yeah, I, I can vouch for that. I could smell it in England. <laughs> okay, we're going to go ahead and uh, end part one right now. And uh, Steph will join me for part two, uh, either tomorrow well, or Steph Tuesday. is sitting there in, on the, in the chat room right now, but she says she can't even watch the video, so probably she can't join us tonight. So... Yeah, uh, I, I won't be around. Uh, have a great uh, second half. Well, we're back. Part two of episode 284. And now I am no longer in Roswell at APG headquarters, but I'm in Norfolk, Virginia at the Sheraton West Side Hotel, I think. I've been here a few times for shows in the past, but even more importantly, we have someone who has joined us. Her name, Dr. Steph. Woohoo! You kicked you kicked uh, Captain Nick out and got me instead. So. Yes, out with the old and in with the new. Well, cheers to that. No, I'm just kidding. We love you, Nick. Hope he's having a safe flight back to England. Yes. So, so no. where, where the heck were you? Uh, why weren't you able I've to been... record the show with us last night? Not even last night, but the the show before that too. I think I yeah. missed two in a row. I have to talk about my absenteeism. Yeah, I HR suppose. is going to contact you. HR will be in touch. Um, I took a little uh, vacation, a little just mental health break, get away, do a lot of nothing except for pamper myself. I uh, went to Costa Rica for about five days. So went down there, spent a little bit of time in San Jose in the capital, and then up to a lovely resort called the Lost Iguana uh, outside of the town of La Fortuna and spend a bunch of days there just you know sitting in the pool enjoying the bar the swim up bar which was very nice in the the heated pool um hot springs had a couple of spa treatments a massage and a facial and feeling refreshed and ready to tackle work again so Excellent. you can probably tell my voice is a little scratchy it's because i got back to work today and i think i've been talking non-stop from 8 a.m until just about now so. i think it was all the tequila actually uh <laughs> so i was saying something about maybe you were enjoying like a pina colada or something like that did they have those kind of drinks down there oh sure yeah okay. i had i actually had a pina colada i had oh, a couple of daiquiris i was right i, yeah. I guessed I, I actually was enjoying the daiquiris because they were yeah. they used a lot of fresh fruit in them and it was really really good nice and um a couple of cervezas some actually i had some really cervezas? good local cervezas <laughs> Uh, like with a question mark but yeah uh, you know like it sounds like um the game show um family feud survey says survey says that's what i thought you said oh but surveys ah ah see it's this beverage here mm. Mm. the happy multi good. you know 
beverage that we like to enjoy so much. Yes, 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 yes. Uh, I had actually a couple of good local IPAs, believe it or not. Uh, one that really? was really, really, really good. Um, just a local microbrewery in San Jose. Uh-huh. And I was drinking that during yesterday's Plain Talking UK at about 7 o'clock in the morning. I saw that. It was. In, it looked like a red stripe bottle. Yeah, it, yeah. All the, um, it's funny, all the craft beers come in those little glass bottles. Uh-huh. Um, but it wasn't red stripe. It was better. Much oh. better. Excellent. I'm uh, impressed that they have quality craft brew i was i was actually very surprised um it was just like kind of stashed away in a little corner of a supermarket you know Uh there was all the the usual like just ambers and lagers and things and then there was one one row of craft beers Uh uh-huh i said "Ooh, what are these and i found a black ipa and just a regular ipa and they were both very good oh nice i still have that beer that uh dr john brown uh the flying doctor Oh, yeah. Uh, gave me at Oshkosh last week or two weeks ago or whenever it was. And uh, so don't let me forget to get that to you when I see you in person, whenever that is. Probably will be It'll sometime. happen. Yeah. Probably in two weeks. Yeah, two weeks. Okay. What's two weeks? You've forgotten what's coming up in two weeks. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's There's right. I will see you. That's right. Happening. Excellent. And yes. that's that's the best way for me to get that stuff to you because I won't have to take it with me in my luggage in a airplane. I'll be driving. Right. Okay. Exactly. Same. Excellent. Here. Yeah. All right. Good. Okay. Well, uh, so we did a little bit. Well, we did all the news and we got to catch up on everything. And we talked about the um, meetup in San Francisco that uh, Captain Nick is going to uh, uh, participate in. Uh, over the weekend and tomorrow just a reminder of course by the time you're listening to this tomorrow is history Uh, but I'll be in Little Rock and I'm meeting up uh, with uh, at least one APG uh, community member perhaps more if you're listening to this live and you happen to be in the Little Rock area uh, make sure that uh, you uh, well I'll I'll put out some tweets and uh, I'll also communicate via Slack in the uh, meetups uh, channel and let you know what we're going to do. And uh, let's see, Wednesday I'll be in Louisville and definitely meeting up with uh, a few um, APG community members for um, a, uh, and we we talked about this already in this episode earlier. Sorry, I'm repeating myself. Uh, But anyway, so we talked about the meetup stuff and I think we did like one or two items of, of feedback and we did the plain tales. So, we're going to try to knock out some of this feedback right now. One or two items of feedback? Yeah. We didn't really do much. Okay. We, we know. Enough. We're Gabby, Gabby uh-huh. something or other. Gabby old birds. So <laughs> I'm going to go over here to Evernote, look at the feedback folder, and uh, start with, um, I don't know, is it Che? Uh, che is her Che? C-H-E Simpson? Sure. Yeah. Episode 269, the 20-year-old guy who asked about cheaper flight training. There are quite a few providers in each state that provide a CPL with a diploma of aviation. The entire cost is deferred via government loan. The loan is called a HELP loan, H-E-L-P. Not affiliated and not going there, but Basair or Basair, B-A-S-A-I-R, at Bankstown Airport offers this. There are plenty of others. The catch is you pay back 20% more However, there is no accumulating ongoing interest. If this was available when I was 20, I'd have jumped at it. And actually, in all honesty, I think that if you have any kind of a loan, 
you're probably going to pay at least 20% more than what you've borrowed. Uh, Unless you pay it off right you know, away. very quickly. Yeah. yeah. Don't let that interest uh, accumulate. And uh, what's the word I'm thinking of? Um, um, compound. You know thinking of? Compound. Thank you. Wow. Yes. I can't believe I actually thought excellent. of a word. <laughs> That's good for yes, me. Compounding interest is, I is guess, bad news. I guess I need to uh, destroy more brain interest. cells with yes. the wine. Yes. Anyway, so Che, She, She, Chi, thank you for your feedback. He, uh, he or she used the app feedback uh, functionality. And uh, just a reminder, get your app. All right. Uh, I'm going to skip this one. We're going to go to, uh, let's see. Let's skip this one too from Richard um, okay. because uh, I think Captain Nick would like to Yes, Probably it's mostly that uh, Plain Tales related. Yeah. Uh, Larry um, Geezer in Tulsa, Oklahoma, sent in um, a link to um, a Qantas flight, a 747-400 vibration incident. And we we did talk about that uh, shortly after that happened. Uh, but apparently they go into a little bit more depth in the article. And he said um, the uh, the fact that it was an excellent example of crew resource management crm and so we'll uh, put a link to that in the in the show notes and you can read it yourself yep i tried to pull it up actually but you have to register for free oh access. that's right that's why i didn't so, include it in the uh in the i feedback. only have like the first half a paragraph of it and yeah uh, it wouldn't the, be a problem to do it i just it takes a moment to actually register for it it's but. yeah paywall i think that's what, yeah. what, what they call it right no it's, it's it's free access you just have to give them your email address so oh really yeah okay Anyway, uh, so if you have, if you want to give them your email, Aviation Week, um, you can look at the uh, link that Larry sent to us. Um, continuing on, Ryan, so he used the uh, APG app. Hello, APG crew. I'm Ryan from Norwalk, Wisconsin. I've been listening to your podcast for over a year. I think I could have, I could have a case of APG syndrome. Uh oh. Uh, I'm hoping to start my flight training soon. I hope to become an airline pilot. Yes, an Airbus pilot. Uh, <laughs> however, sorry, we're going to have to stop reading your feedback now. Moving on. <laughs> yeah, moving on. However, uh, I, like many people, don't think I could afford going to a flying college. So I guess my question for all of you is do you, any of you know any airline pilot that doesn't have a degree? Thank you, everyone on the APG crew, for the great podcast. Go Airbus! Well, you happen to be in luck because the co-host on this show, who is not with us right now, but is on the way flying from New York City to Heathrow in London, um, Captain Nick, mm -hmm. he does not have a college degree. Mm -hmm. And so. it's different in different parts of the world as, in yep. terms of what is required. But, you know, if you're looking strictly to become an airline pilot, um, quite a few of the regionals, my understanding is you don't actually need to have a college degree. So that could be a way to at least get your foot in the door and start doing it. And then I know a lot of people along the way, once they actually have, you know, a regular steady paycheck, um, quite a few people do online courses and online degrees. And that's a way to get your or to fulfill and tick off that checkbox of getting a college degree. So it may not be something that you do maybe as quickly as some other people do. But, um, you know, where there's a will, there's a way sometimes. So um, yeah. and, okay. you know, it doesn't have to be. Ivy League schools. I went to a state college, affordable 
university setting or mm-hmm. more affordable, I should say. Um, yeah, I think there's there's plenty of ways to do that. So, and a lot of people would say that my degree from Auburn University isn't a really isn't a college degree at all. No. Yeah, because they have something against Auburn. <laughs> uh-huh. I mean, those people that went to Georgia and Alabama probably say that. Probably. But I think you'd probably say the same about them. Yeah, I do. <laughs> uh, let's see. Walt. Um, here, why don't you read this one, Steph? Do you have that Walt uh, APG 275 I in do. general aviation? Yes, yes. Okay. It says, good morning, APG crew. Good afternoon, good morning. Walt. <laughs> good morning to you. It might be morning when you're listening to this. Uh, I just wanted to, to quickly say thanks for doing what y'all do. I'm a commercially related, commercially rated single engine land pilot working on my multi and CFI, CFII. I fly a Cirrus SR22 professionally out of uh, CAE, Columbia. Columbia, Columbia, South Carolina, not too far from Atlanta. In episode 275, you guys asked us, asked for us GA guys to speak up. Here we are. I fly 75 to 100 hours a month. Wow. That's quite a bit. Um, many of my legs are deadheads, and it can get quite boring as single pilot with a light workload. I download the podcast and listen to them via Bluetooth in the cockpit. Thanks for keeping me entertained on those long, boring flights. <clears throat> Excuse me. I own a 1968 Citabria and fly it as much as I can. It's easy to lose your stick and rudder skills when your primary function in the cockpit is pressing buttons and turning knobs. So come on over to South Carolina one day. Walter. Walt. I'm here. <laughs> I'll give you a uh, tour of beautiful Lake Murray. Keep up the great work, guys. Walt Hurley. So Awesome. Um, we'll have to do yeah. a meetup down there, Steph. We should. Columbia is not far from me. Yeah. Not at all. That's an easy flight. I've actually been into that airport, and it's not a far drive either. Yeah, you've joined me a it's few times. I've had there, so. nice long layovers in, um, in Columbia, and we've recorded there a few mm-hmm. shows. So... That's awesome. But it's it's funny him talking about the uh, Sirius SR-22 and losing your stick and rudder skills. I know exactly what he means in that airplane. It's very highly automated or can be if you mm-hmm. want it to be. So. Uh, the Airbus of general aviation? It's is the Airbus of general aviation. It's got the side <laughs> stick and everything. It's, uh-huh. uh, yeah. Oh, it's all downhill from here. Yeah. Well, he's got the Citabria, So. Yeah, that's great. That's a great that's airplane. A, actually, that's an awesome airplane. Yeah. So very cool. Well, thanks, Walt. Uh, for uh, for for chiming in, we do appreciate that. Um, Robert, uh, I think this is Robert and Marietta. Let's see. Let me double check. Yeah, Robert Thompson um, was great meeting you all Sunday. I think he's talking about uh, our meetup at the Braves game at the SunTrust Park. He says my face is gonna start peeling soon, even with sunscreen. Came across this today. Maybe this is why Dana doesn't fly with you often. And he put in parentheses, stirring the pot. Is this a common option across most of the USA carriers? What about flight attendants? And so there's an article from the telegraph.co.uk, travel truths, do not pair list uh, who take like each other. So it's an article about uh, the, the function that a lot of our bidding systems have. Uh, that you can specify people that you don't want to be paired with on a trip. And I think we've talked a little bit about this in the past, but um, I, as a captain, 
I don't have the capability to say, I don't want to fly fly with employee number or blah, 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 like Dana. I don't want to fly with Dana. I mean, come Is on. Is that just a first officer function? Then? Yes. Only the first officers uh. can say, I don't want to fly with a captain. And the reason for that is that when they run these schedules and they assign the various crew positions for each uh, trip, they start with the captains. And then after that's all done, then the first officer's bidding preferences go in. And so if uh, somebody wants the particular trip that I've been assigned, but then they see me and I'm on their do not fly list, it'll go, nope, not going to assign you that trip. I'm going to move on. So that could be right, uh, Robert. That's That might be why Dana doesn't ever fly with me, even though he says that he tries to. <laughs> you know, I don't know. I'm not looking at what he's bidding. Do you know if it works the same way for flight attendants? I don't know. I'm not sure. I know that I've heard them I imagine talk that about that might be a little more difficult, but I, I've heard them like buddy bit. I know they can do it in a positive way and say, I want right, to right. bid this trip with, with this person. Yeah. yeah. But I'm not sure if they can do the and negative pilots can do that as well. Correct. You can. Yeah. Kind of. I, th- I don't know. Never mind. Sure. Maybe. Yeah. But of course, I'm just talking about the system that I'm familiar with at uh, Acme. Uh, perhaps. The other carriers have more sophisticated systems and they can do a little bit more in that regard. But um, I think this is kind of one of those articles that is just a little bit, you know, they're making kind of more out of it than they really need to. And, it was uh, a I think slow if you'd news asked, day. Most pilots would say, you know what, 99% of the people that I've flown with, I have no problem with. We're all standardized and most of us have a reasonably good personality. Uh, but every once in a while, you'll fly with uh, someone who... You know, you're just not that someone has a bad personality. It's just that your personalities kind of don't mesh very well, you know. So, yeah. Um, but as I said, it happens very infrequently. But I do hear from some of my first officers about some of these uh, captains out there that are on their do not fly list and why. And I'm, I'm thinking, really? They do what? Wow. I don't yeah. blame you for not wanting to fly with them. So. That's pretty crazy. Yeah. And, you know, wouldn't that be nice stuff if you could do that? I do not work with list for the people. That's never going to happen for me. (laughs) I love everyone that I work with. I don't know what you're talking about. I know you do. You've told me that many, many times. You're you're a lucky girl. I am. I really am. (laughs) Um, But I can actually see where this this is uh, something that maybe you would just want the first officers to be able to specify and not the captains because uh, you know there's as much as it's relatively equal footing you know if there's significant decisions to be made and someone's not comfortable with you know the captain that they were flying with then they may not want to put themselves in that situation so exactly it makes sense yeah it makes sense yeah i wish i had that capability back in the days when i was a first officer but we didn't. Oh, is it relatively new? Yeah. Uh, it's all new with the uh, preferential bidding system. Gotcha. Or PBS. And that we're not talking about public broadcasting. Uh, let's see. Sean wrote in and said, just how young is that pilot? I guess the pilot shortage is happening and regionals are looking for younger and younger pilots. And he uh, put in a link from the Telegraph. Um, and uh, it's uh, a two pilots have been suspended for allowing a 10 year old boy to operate cockpit controls during a commercial passenger flight in Algeria, according to a local news report. 
A video of the incident broadcast by the Algerian TV channel El Bilad shows the boy wearing a captain's hat, a tie, and a black waistcoat sitting in the left-hand pilot's seat. He appears to push buttons and handle the controls under the supervision of the first officer in the right-hand seat and the captain in the observer's seat, apparently oblivious to any risks caused during the flight between Algiers International Airport and Saif Regional Airport. One of the pilots says in the video that the boy was very well disciplined, uh, calm and attentive. I am sure he will make a good pilot. And it goes on talking about this uh, incident. And apparently it was a commercial flight with passengers. And uh, the uh, the management of the airline said, um, you can't do that. <laughs> You're not supposed to do that. You're suspended. So there's a video showing him on there if you want to look at yeah. the article. I mean, there's a difference between taking your child up and your personal aircraft and you know while you're sitting there on dual controls and letting them hold on and you know do a few limited things and taking a child up on a commercial flight with paying passengers in the back and doing the same thing that's yeah clear clear differences in my mind now sean says in seriousness i have no problem with what the pilots did here i fondly remember going up to the cockpit of commercial flights when i was a child while I was only able to observe, it started a long, lifelong passion for aviation and travel. I even remember entire flights where the cockpit door was left open the entire time. Uh, so that just reminded me of something that occurred. It was in Russia, and um, the airline captain, I believe, let his son access the uh, sit in the seat and fly the airplane. It was turning it and doing some things and something something really bad happened and somehow got the airplane into an aggravated stall or something and it crashed and killed everybody on board yeah um do you remember that incident stuff uh vaguely i'd, I'd have yeah. to go back and look which at which flight it was it was a while um, back um, there there was something that happened similar yeah. to this so that's probably why I, they frown on this yeah so sean certainly i don't have a problem if uh, you know kids are in the cockpit watching observing they shouldn't be touching anything on a flight where there are paying passengers in the back is is my feeling on that yep so. i agree i think most people would and you know we do we do the same things in in medicine certainly i always have or frequently have student observers and and things like that but um i don't directly train um newer physicians so anyone i have with me is strictly an observer they're you don't let people to. like do injections no stuff. they're not allowed to give injections they're not allowed to touch medications they're not even allowed to touch the computer so they just have yeah. to they just have yeah. to touch themselves well, that's something entirely <laughs> different sorry <laughs> I'm sorry I, actually, I went there no i actually had something to say to that and then i thought better of it so. okay You're welcome. <laughs> as matt would say from the PTUK, family, family show family, family show, show. Yeah. <laughs> okay moving on um nick uh, not Nick, Captain Nick, uh, let's see, Nick uh, Wilson says, hope you are all well, crew. Uh, just saw this article, thought you might be, or you might find it interesting for either the news segment or feedback. And then he gives us the link, which I'll put in the show notes. It's great to see more female pilots at the controls. Dr. Steph, an ambition one day in the future? Are you seeing an increasing number of female pilots at Acme and Acme Red? And uh, so he has some specific questions. I think this one's for me. At Acme, are there many on the Mad Dog fleet? 
I'll tell you what, uh, recently in the last mm, two, three years, I'd say, you know, when we started really hiring um, this new wave of, of hiring, uh, a lot more female pilots now. It's, um, you know, you'd hardly ever see a female pilot in the pilot lounge or walking around uh, with an Acme uniform. And now you see them all the time. In fact, and actually, I, I have a, as I was say, I have a personal friend not related to the show here who's a uh, Acme Mad Dog captain. She was on the 7576 before and then uh-huh. switched over to the 80. Is she on the Mad Dog now? Uh-huh. Yep. Okay. So I thought I thought I was going to be flying with a female um, first officer on this trip because I looked to see who was, I was signing in and it said uh, the first officer was Kelly, uh, Kelly Dent. And I thought, oh, cool. So I'm expecting to see a female at the uh, gate and this big, tall guy. <laughs> male Kelly. Yes. Male Kelly, yeah. yeah. Um, so see how stereotypes, you know, I just see Kelly and I'm assuming it's going to be a female. I have a, good, I have a good male friend whose name is Kelly. Yeah. yeah. And that makes sense. Good Irish name, and actually, right? Yep. And the uh, captain of my flight last night was a female. Okay. Oops. Uh, let's see. Nick, I know she flies the Boeing Dinosaur for Virgin, and you are king of the Airbus fleet for Acme Red, but have your paths ever crossed? Well, Captain Nick, you'll have to tell us on the next show because he's not here. <laughs> uh, and then he says, I guess this must be part of the uh, article. By the way, I wonder who the silver-haired foxes are that she should she could be referring to. Captain Jeff, Captain Nick, you silver foxes. Yeah, I doubt it. Uh, love the podcast and Miami Hicks, how I got here had me laughing out loud in public on a train to Gatwick airport the other week. Good. Yes. Blues. That's why Miami Hick is such an important part of our community so that you can laugh out loud in public when you're listening to a podcast and people can look at you strangely. What is wrong with this guy? Yes. Um, you're welcome. Yes, you are. I do just have one question though. Like, I don't know if you've pulled up the article with Mm -hmm. the picture. Of uh, Captain Kershaw. Okay, let me try. She's okay. She's wearing a reading. skirt, and I have nothing against wearing skirts, but that just seems a little difficult. Oh yeah, like, uh, and it's I not an Airbus either. airplane. It's not an Airbus. I think you could probably get away with it on an Airbus. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, but it just seems a little difficult. That's all. Huh. And I enjoy wearing skirts. Like, don't get me wrong. I'm just, me too. Yeah. There you yeah, go. Uh, that is interesting. Okay, I'm looking at it right now. Um, so, yeah, um, you know, this I don't I don't know how you feel about this stuff, but um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, there there seem to be a lot of articles about you know the first female that did this, first female that did that, and everything. And I think that's great. I think that, and you know, we've talked about this before. I, I think that um, the whole point of gender equality is just to not point out. Not that, pointed out. Yeah. You know, no, I'm the same like, way. It's like I, it doesn't matter to me at all. Like, yeah. So what? Know. Like the all female crew. Well, okay, then great. They're all qualified pilots. You know, that's that's great. Um, I don't I don't know why we kind of go out of our way to point out this thing. And I thought the whole point of I, it was not to point it out and just yeah. accept. I guess that because it's still kind of a relatively rare occurrence. Yeah. I don't um. Know. I, I yeah. I, I think as it becomes more commonplace which i think it's definitely going to it's yeah. not going to be such a surprise to it and it's to not going to be long before it is very no, no, very commonplace I'll, I'll tell you it, what there's a lot of female pilots especially coming up through the ranks now and mm-hmm. it's going to just become more and more commonplace so yeah and i don't think we'll have to be having these articles which like you said i don't think there's anything wrong with the articles it just seems a little strange that we have to point it out every time right so and and trust me i 
so I've as, flown as with, the female representative here, I think it's a little strange. Also, I feel good. I'm glad to hear that. I, I've flown with females um, even back in the Air Force. And some of the best pilots I've flown with were female. And some of the worst f- pilots I flew with were female. Uh, some of the best pilots I fly with, uh, flew with were male. And some of the worst pilots I've flown with are male. So it's not really a gender specific no, job. No, it's not. It's no. not at all. And In fact, I'm not sure there's too many gender specific jobs out there. I can think of a few, yeah. which I won't name on this show. Yeah, like gentlemen's clubs, uh, you know, and pole dancing and that kind of thing. Yeah. Definitely. There yeah. there'd be yeah. a, a certain gender that I would prefer to see do that right. kind of thing than yes. the other. Than others. But then again, you know, different strokes, right? For different exactly. folks. Exactly. That's what makes the world go round. Yes. <laughs> oh, I have a terrible picture in my head. Thank you, Steph. <laughs> You're so welcome. <laughs> Anyway, well, I'm the one that came up with that whole situation anyway, so sorry. You know, I was just alluding to it. You had to point yeah, out the Yeah, I know. I just, so. I just had to go there, didn't I? You did. <laughs> okay, this next one from Tom uh, having to do with uh, tornadoes and engine acceleration. That, again, I think is one that uh, Captain Nick should probably uh, address when he's okay. back because he flew the tornado, yeah, I think, didn't he? Wasn't that one of the airplanes uh, he flew? Should probably really know that the Phantom. Um, no, the Tornado. Yeah, no, I know. I'm listing airplanes that oh, I know okay. for sure the he Hunter, actually flew. Hunt, uh, anyway, he flew a bunch of different he'll, airplanes. He'll set us straight. I'd... Yeah. Uh, so anyway, he kind of specifically asks Captain Nick some questions there. Uh, part of this question I can answer as well, but uh, this is Tom Ling. So Tom, hang in there. Uh, we'll answer that on a future show. But this one, I can. Uh, tackle and it's some audio feedback from Roger. Greetings APG friends it's Radio Roger with another long-winded question. A while back you discussed the ear accident investigation TV shows. Well the best episode I ever saw was the one on the Tenerife airport disaster in the Canary Islands. Still the worst aviation accident ever with 583 people killed. That accident was ultimately the fault of one pilot, a highly admired veteran with KLM in command of a 747. He began his takeoff roll without authorization and slammed into a Pan Am 747 taxing down the runway in poor visibility. What made this documentary so effective was the way it showed how the table was set for this accident with one event after another turning up the pressure on the flight crews and the people in the control tower over a very long day. And it got me thinking about how other high pressure situations cause otherwise competent flight crews to stop thinking clearly and ignore prudent procedures. There's Air France 447, which you've talked about often. That's when an airspeed sensor went out during a flight through bad weather and so confused three pilots that they acted erratically. They interfered with each other's side stick movements and put the plane into an unsustainable angle of attack until it just fell out of the sky. And the sad irony in this case was the Airbus A330 was perfectly flyable. If the pilots had done absolutely nothing, they would have been fine. I also think of Eastern 401, the L-1011, which crashed into the Everglades. That happened because three pilots were so focused on a non-illuminating landing gear indicator that no one noticed that the autopilot was off and the plane was slowly losing altitude. And these examples bring me to my question. Are there stressful situations where you have to tell yourself to slow down and double check your actions because your adrenaline could lead to a mistake? 
I know your obvious answer would be, you're always careful. Well, so am I as a reporter, but I know I have to be especially wary when approaching a story that's controversial or could affect someone's reputation, as opposed to just covering an average run-of-the-mill feature. So what are the things you look out for as pilots? When do you have to stop and take a deep breath so you don't make a dangerous mistake? I turn it back over to you. This is Radio Roger, over and out. Thank you, Radio Roger, for your feedback. And uh, let me turn the screen off. There we go. Uh, yeah. Uh, when you are uh, faced with a, a very stressful situation, I think that your, your training kicks in and you start doing things very methodically. And I'm not sure if you're really thinking about slowing everything down and making sure you're doing things in a, um, a determined, um, I forgot what the other word I'm looking for is, uh, but uh, a very regimented, determined mm -hmm. way. Um, but that's generally what happens. Um, and it's, again, it all is due to the training that you've had and seeing those kind of simulated scenarios uh, in training, et cetera. And, um, yeah, you have to be careful because especially when you're doing checklists, it's really, it's really easy to start rushing through a checklist and then skipping a step or performing a step out, know, of order. In, out of order or inappropriately, you know, doing the opposite of what it tells you to do. And then you end up, you know, digging yourself in a big hole. Yeah. I don't know if you can you know, hear that thunder outside. Wow. What's that? Uh, just a big thunderclap. Okay, go ahead. Um, no, as I say, the, you know, the, the human factor stuff is always the really interesting stuff, I think. And um, I have many more examples of this from my everyday job than I do from aviation just because of sheer volume of experience. But I know exactly what he's talking about. And I think a lot of it comes into play where – and pilots are very susceptible to this too, where you're doing – you were mentioning about checklists. Um, you're doing the same thing, the same task, sometimes over and over and over again throughout the day. And it just becomes very routine and very rote. And if for me, the problem is because I'm repeating the same thing sometimes almost every 15 minutes, you start to they start to blend together a little bit and you go, oh, I did that already. But maybe you didn't that time. Maybe that was the time before. And that's where you get into trouble and you get into trouble where you have certain I know we were just talking about expectation bias and all of that, especially with the stuff that happened in San Francisco, where you're expecting to see one thing and maybe that's not exactly how it, it looks this time around for some reason. And your brain just tells you, nope, that's it, go for it. You know, um, That's where you really have to stop and take that step back. And like you said, that's where experience comes in because without that experience, it's hard to recognize those um, instances where that occurs. So, um, but even with experience, you know, Sometimes that's where you get even to get into that trap even more because um, you're so used to and so accustomed to things as they should be that your brain kind of skips it when it's not. So, yeah. no, I know. I know exactly what you're talking about, Roger. So, yep. And then it's hard to admit to yourself when you've realized the, the issue and go back and go, oh, nope, I need to take a step back from this. Maybe slow things down a whole lot maybe start over um and it's hard to it's hard to admit that to yourself and sometimes hard to admit it if you have to admit it to other people too so yeah 
Uh, we uh, have uh, there's been a lot of emphasis in the last few years in our training programs in the uh, major well like probably all the airlines uh, for um, certain things that happen that uh, you have time to work through and you don't need to rush and then there are certain things that happen that are uh, that you don't have any time to really think about and uh, be deliberate with your steps you just have to get things done as quickly as you can. Uh, for instance, a fire on the airplane and perhaps a medical emergency, potentially, depending on the mm -hmm. severity. But uh, there are a lot of other things that we do and, and, you know, serious emergencies, but they're not time critical emergencies. And the mistake that uh, we've seen over and over again in the past is that people treat these as I got to get everything done as fast as I can. I got to get on the ground. And then they end up making things worse. And those are the things they're trying to emphasize to us that, okay, you know, like one of the sayings we always say is like, wind the clock, you know, just go over there and start, you know, uh, people are listening to this. Young people are going, what do, what do they mean? Wind the clock. <laughs> my, my clock doesn't have it. Yeah, I know. Most clocks don't have a little thing, but you know, we actually have in our cockpit uh, still. Uh, well, actually, that's I, not true. I do uh, have a time travel function on my watch. It'll go backwards. Yeah. In time, so but, well, that'd be nice. It. Yeah. To go yeah. backwards in time. Yeah. But uh, anyway, so in other words, just stop and do something and think about what's happening. Take a few steps back. Look at the big picture. Uh, I think Pip uh, has, has addressed this several times on his great uh, show regarding uh, safety. Um, sometimes you just have to, if it's not time critical, take a few steps back, see what you may have. Let's or even reanalyze what it is you think is happening. And wow. Oh, big, I heard uh, that bolt actually. of lightning and uh, thunderclap. Oh, I didn't tell you about the one that I saw in Costa Rica. It was one of those ones we were actually. Um, I was taking the shuttle back to for, from the uh, resort back to San Jose on the last day, and we were stopped at the side of the road just for a little break, and it was a big thunderstorm coming through, uh -huh. and I was just enjoying my uh, Gatorade and watching across the street, and it was the lightning struck right there and instantaneously just boom. You yeah, know? when it, you know, it's it, close it was, when the lightning yeah. and the thunder come at, at the, the same, same time. exact time. It was, it was very impressive. Yikes! Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, we're glad it didn't hit you, Steph. I am glad of that too. That would have been shocking. Shocking. <laughs> As I say, something about temperature, but okay. oh, Liz, you're so funny. Jeff has a sundial in his cockpit. <laughs> Wind the sundial. No, Wind that doesn't work. That's just not a good metaphor. <laughs> No, but, uh, you know, and maybe that's a good takeaway point from all of this. Know what those time critical things are. Mm -hmm. Have that as a mini checklist in your own head. So if something's not going right, you yes. know, take that half a second and go, is it this, that, the other, like you mentioned, fire, you know, medical emergency, something that really truly is time critical. And if it's not one of those things, then take that second, pause, breathe you know, step back from the situation because sometimes when you're in it too close, that's when it's hard to see the, the big picture of the forest for the trees. Yeah. So. I hope I don't lose power here. It might happen. Yeah. Um, Abrupt end to the show. So, you know, like I'm, you know, in surgery or we're in surgery and the, you don't want the doctor to rush through something. There's and, very few things that I do that are time critical except yeah. for the most serious things, you know, which is, the respiratory arrest, cardiopulmonary arrest, that type of stuff. Mm -hmm. in, in my line of work, that happens exceptionally rarely. So, yeah. 
which is a good thing. It's a good thing. So usually I can just take that second step back, mm-hmm. you know, and figure out what the, the problem is or the discrepancy is and hopefully not make an error where one shouldn't be committed. So. Right. All right. Well, Radio Roger, thanks for your feedback and also thank you for your support, uh, financial support. He's a Coffee Fund Cadre member. Thank you, Roger. Yes. We appreciate it. Uh, let's see. Flying Kiwi. Speaking of Coffee Fund Cadre members at the very top level. Yes. Uh, yes. We have uh, Lucas from Down Under and he sent us some audio feedback. Let's take a look. He says, great show, guys. Been listening to a few in a row. It's been keeping me crazy. Thanks. <laughs> you're welcome, you're, I yeah. think. You're welcome. <laughs> hey, APG crew. This is the Flying Kiwi. Um, I've been off doing uh, heavy, hard manual labor, uh, which uh, is uh, quite different for me because I uh, usually work at a desk and, and a boring computer job. And uh, it's been great. And I've been listening to the show. Uh, it's been keeping me sane. Or should that be my APG syndrome's been keeping me crazy? I don't know. Uh, one of those things. Um, Hey, sorry to hear about your laptop, Dana, but I want to say, as an IT professional and having been uh, what we used to call a knock jockey, network operations centre jockey, and a help desk guy, um, you did exactly the right thing. Uh, the moment you put anything sticky into an electronic device, you can play the, that's what she said, um, you absolutely should wash it out with water. Um, I had a lady come up to me screaming, um, that she dropped her tea into her laptop once and um, I turned around and I said to her how many sugars and she looked at me like what are you what are you talking about I said how many sugars she said two and I went brilliant so I grabbed the laptop went straight over the tap and rinsed it out because of course sugar in its liquid state when it dries is just a horrible sticky mess especially when it's mixed with uh, milk so you did exactly right um, I wouldn't have used the compressed air because that tends to force moisture into componentry that you don't really want it to sit with. But um, using the rice and using the vacuum, um, brilliant. Again, well done. So you've probably saved your MacBook or certainly saved a lot of it anyway. Um, the problem with MacBooks is, of course, it's all onboard componentry so they can't swap bits out. They'll either replace the entire board or you get a new one. Um, either way, you win. Uh, couple of other things. Um, I, I'll give you my scary moment in an aeroplane. I've had a few, uh, mostly down to me flying, but um, I was with my CFI, which uh, in New Zealand stands for Chief Flying Instructor, not Certified Flying Instructor. And we were coming in, um, I was just about to do my PPL practical, and I was in the downwind leg at Omaka. Um, Omaka is surrounded by hills, so there's a lot of backscatter. And on the downwind, very late downwind, I saw a glider at the very last second um, doing an opposite downwind. Now, normally the gliders that Omaka use opposite circuits, left hand, right hand sort of thing. This guy thought opposite circuit meant opposite ways downwind. (laughs) And I passed around about two to three metres above him. Um, Those People who know gliding and know how lovely and calm and quiet it, it is um, can only imagine the sound of 180 horsepower turning a prop uh, three metres above you would sound like. It would have been quite horrific. Um, I was very, very shaken because um, it was three metres away at 500 feet and neither no one was getting out of that one alive. Um, so we, we, you know, 
managed to land and my instructor um, decided to run across the field and have a little word with some of the glider operations guys um, and I went and had a coffee. Um, the other um, uh, sort of sphincter tightening moment that I've had and also involved gliders and this one was at Lasham actually in the UK. Uh, Lasham is not far from RAF Odium, uh, Captain Nick might know RAF Odium. RAF Odium is the uh, CH-47 uh, Chinook base for the RAF and um, I was coming in with uh, a passenger on board, actually an instructor who'd just come along for the ride, um, and we were in the high key, which is which is coming down the downwind. Um, the downwind at Lasham is over a um, dense sort of dark canopy tree line, um, and something caught my eye in the periphery of, of my vision, and I looked down to see below me, now I was at 800 feet, below me was a Chinook returning to um, RAF Odium. And I tell you what, I know what it feels like to be suspended over a kitchen blender. <laughs> it was pretty freaking scary. <laughs> um, I said to the instructor, hey, look down. And um, I cannot cannot tell you what he said because this would this is a PG show, but yeah. It was it was a lot of swearing and, 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 and tightening of belts and we landed and had a great story to tell in the pub later on. Um, yeah, so that's about it. Um, oh, um, one last question for, for Dr. Steph, actually. Um, I was talking to a friend of mine who is a meat bomber up at Taupo, um, parachuting pilot for, for the rest of us, um, and he was telling me about some CFG um, uh, transfers that he'd, he'd been a party to, um, you know what I mean, basically all the jumpers rush to the back and then suddenly the CFG changes. I wonder if Dr Steph has had any of these problems because he was quite shaken after one of his uh, the other week and uh, we, we met up in a pub and he was talking about it and he still looked a bit white even then. So um, just interested to see if you've had any um, CFG upsets um, as people have left or people have rushed towards the back of the aircraft. Um, be kind of interesting to know because it's something I kind of want to start doing um, but that tail sort of put me off it a bit <laughs> um, anyway Talon's Douglas and uh, thanks for the great podcast guys see you later alright great feedback as always flying kiwi yes so Steph I can answer that question so you know CG upsets center of gravity upsets um, hopefully Jeff isn't going to get electrocuted here. <laughs> so I'm inside, so I think I'm okay. safe. Perfect. Um, so personally, so the few times I've actually uh, been up front flying skydivers around, you can definitely feel it. Um, most of that experience was in a caravan. And if there's a um, typically, um, you know, large groups, when they get out, you can feel when they all head to the back at the same time and hang off the edge of the, of the plane. Um, you do have to be careful in certain aircraft types over others. Um, some are much more susceptible to um, stalling just because of the angle of attack that the plane is already flying at to be um, at a slower speed to let the skydivers exit safely. So if a whole bunch of people exit to the back and don't actually exit the aircraft in a timely fashion, the, the aircraft can stall. Um, I know um, for the, the aircraft where we are, the King Air is more susceptible to that than some of the other aircraft. Um, but fortunately I've not actually seen anything serious happen like that. Um, and 
the people that I jump with and fly with are all very cognizant of that. We actually spend a lot of time on talking about those types of scenarios and how we get into those scenarios and how not to get into those scenarios. So um, most people know when it's your group's turn to go, you you go. So you don't spend a lot of time just hanging outside the airplane with all of, you know, you and your 10 buddies at the back of the plane and no one up front because that really will upset the center of gravity of a small aircraft. So Sounds like fun, though. It is fun. Should try it sometime. <laughs> <laughs> but don't let that discourage you. You know, if you want to do, if you're looking to getting into um, um, flying skydivers and things like that, it's really all about um, your training and then it's all about the safety culture of the drop zone where you are and making sure that the jumpers are aware of those risks as well because they don't want that to happen either. Trust me. Um, they're, they're, we're more safety conscious than than you might expect for yeah. people who are willing to get out of a perfectly good aircraft. So No, there is obviously um, a safety culture there. Um, yes. you know, you're not suicidal maniacs. Uh, at least most of no, you. No, no. Most of us are not. <laughs> no, no. The ones that jump yeah, out no, the door no, without I mean, a parachute, they're the ones that are suicidal yeah, maniacs. But no, I mean, I mean, seriously, everyone is very safety conscious and people take it very seriously. And um, where people get into trouble with that is because of some of the stuff we talked about earlier. You know, it's it's human factors stuff. Some things uh, people get caught up in the jump they're planning on doing and they're thinking about it and something's not quite right and they don't leave as planned. And that's where it starts to become problematic. But, um, you know, our pilots are pretty good if they if they want you to get out, they're going to basically make sure you exit the aircraft. <laughs> so a number of things they'll either start descending they'll dump you off the side they'll you're gonna get off so you know i wish we had the uh, option of jettisoning passengers jettisoning um, your passengers yeah. yeah we don't have that option yeah. sorry oh, well. yeah and uh let's see this may be the last one depending on how long this takes to do uh jan jan the man sent in some feedback from the uh, APG app and he also sent some the other way by sending it to feedback at airlinepilotguy.com the audio portion of this he says hello APG crew this is Jan Sears I've been listening to the show for the last several months and finally decided to leave some feedback well what took you so long Jan the man I'm a 49 year old living in the San Francisco Bay Area I started flying at age 10 out of the Oakland and Hayward airports. So that would have been about 39 years ago. Pretty good, huh? I am now a pilot for a state agency and based out of Napa. I know, rough place to be based. We patrol the skies over the Bay Area. I am very fortunate and blessed to have such a wonderful area to fly in. I wanted to at least introduce myself since I chimed in about a meetup with Captain Nick while he is here on August 12th. I'm an avid podcast listener and wanted to relate to you all that the mix of fun and facts, questionable at times, <laughs> a lot of the time actually, uh, keeps me coming back for three hours every week. I wanted to leave you all with a question or more of inquiry. I'm considering switching jobs to fly for a regional. I know I'm not over the hill yet, but I'm no spring chicken either. I wanted to get the opinion of the crew on this possible career move. I currently get to sleep in my own bed every night. I fly as in my hands are on the controls of our fine Gips Airvan GA8 at all times, well, most of the time, and the pay is great. 
but I have a longing to fly people to see their loved ones, to get them to meetings, or to go on vacation. Not to mention the challenges airline pilots face every day. Just wanted to spur the conversation with the group of people I've grown to admire. Yes, you too, Jeff. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Captain Nick, I look forward to meeting you and the rest of the APG listeners that turn up at the meetup. Many thanks to uh, for all you do. Because of this podcast, I've found a productive way to waste three hours each week. <laughs> Cheers. You know, I feel like you're welcome, Jan. Backhanded compliments. Backhanded compliments. Yeah. Even I. You know. Thank you. He's even. He, you're even talking about passive me. aggressiveness. Yeah. There's that. Oh, thank you. This is an example of that. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it's more a backhanded compliment. Yeah. But. Yeah. Okay, so uh, he did send in some audio feedback as well, and maybe some of what he says in the audio is duplicated in his um, text feedback, but uh, let's let's have a listen, see what Jan has to say. Hello, ABG crew and ABG listeners. My name's Jan Sears. I live out in the Bay Area near San Francisco. Just wanted to say how much I really enjoy the show. I've been listening for the last uh, several months and really excited to... Uh, be at the meetup with uh, Captain Nick as he comes out on the 12th of August to uh, visit San Francisco. Look forward to interacting with the other APG listeners and all the other av geeks that uh, show up there. I, um, I'm fortunate enough to get to fly in the Bay Area full time as a uh, pilot for a local uh, law enforcement agency and fly in a uh, Gips Air Van uh, Golf Alpha 8, which is a uh, Australian aircraft it looks a lot like a caravan and uh, serves as a wonderful platform for us to uh, to do our thing here in the bay area but i just wanted to uh, tell all you folks um captain jeff thanks for all the work you do on this show it's outstanding um captain nick i absolutely love plain tales and uh look forward to it every week um the three-hour podcast you guys put together uh fills up all four days of my uh, commute back and forth from work so i really enjoy that and uh look forward to uh meeting you sir this uh this uh, next week here so i look forward to listening to uh, what you folks have to say and uh especially enjoyed all the interaction uh, about the air canada adventure the previous week since that took place in my backyard and uh we had a little bit of involvement in that as far as the FAA goes, so that was kind of interesting to hear your guys' take on it. So thanks again for all you guys do. Um, have a wonderful evening, and uh, cheers. Thank you. Yeah, so I'm sure you'll enjoy meeting uh, good Sir Captain Nick. You know, he used to fly airplanes, but now he's an Airbus pilot. Uh, let's see. We're so, all sad for him. Yeah. <laughs> um. Yeah, so, yeah, there was a little bit of duplication there, but, you know, a little bit of different stuff. It's always good to hear your voices. Uh, so sending in audio feedback is definitely something we enjoy. Um, and I'm, I've been watching the chat room, and they've been coming up with some great taglines for the APG. Thank you, Liz. APG, time well wasted. <laughs> Thanks. What was the other one? APG, time you'll not get back. <laughs> you'll not get back. <laughs> Nope. Ah, okay. So, no, it sounds like it's going to be a really fun meetup again in San Francisco. So. Yeah, wish I was uh, going to be out Looking, there. I know, August twelfth. Oh well, I won't be here. 
but I won't be there either. So, so where will you be on August 12th, which is Saturday? I will be in Chicago. Oh, another trip to Chicago. I, I was in I Chicago I, on my last trip. I know you were. Yeah. At the Hilton. It's a nice. Very nice. Yeah. The Hilton uh, downtown, right? Yep. Uh, right at yep. Grant Park. I've, yep. I've stayed. I stay there. Actually, I've stayed there several times in the past for the marathon. Oh, nice. So. Nice. So you're not doing the marathon this next weekend, are you? No, I have a cousin who's getting married out oh, in the okay. suburbs. So Another one. <laughs> yes. Okay. I have a lot of cousins. Yeah, a lot of family. That's that's good. Yes. That's family. It is, is good. Family is good. Okay. Well, you know what? With that, I think that uh, this is a good point to end the show um, and talk about the fact that you can head over to airlinepilotguy.com. And you can learn about the uh, crew members and the community and different ways to watch and listen to the show. And uh, if you want to buy some APG merchandise that's there as well, although I haven't looked at it recently, I'm assuming you can still get stuff. Um, let's see what else. What, what else is there, Steph? <laughs> On the website? That's yeah. That's a great question. I don't know, but I can <laughs> I tell know. you about social media. Well, why don't you do that then? So, All right. On uh, social media, uh, you can find us on Twitter. It's at APG Crew. Um, all of us are there. We will answer your tweets and questions, and you can send us stuff there and interact. Um, you can also head over to Facebook, facebook.com slash airline pilot guy. Um, again, information about meetups gets posted there when we remember to do so. Captain Nick is pretty active there responding to your um, feedback and questions and comments and it's also a good place for folks to post um, some aviation related content so head on over there and, and check out what's going on excellent yes and is there any other social platform that we are present on there is uh, we are pl present on slack and I think um, is Hillel still there no, let me check Hillel are you are you over there yeah hang on APG listeners, please join us on our Slack team. On Slack, we share news and ideas. We suggest episode and plain tales topics. We plan meetups and events. To get into the Slack team, please send me a tweet with your preferred email address to at HI11E1, and I'll send you an invitation. That's Hillel at HI11E1, and see you in Slack. Thanks, Hillel. <laughs> He always comes in. It's so nice of him to just hang out in the in the bathroom. Yeah. Oh, by the way, I, I should I need to quickly um, mention that after we recorded the last episode, well, you weren't here, Steph, but uh, when Captain Nick and I recorded the uh, episode when I believe I was in Chicago, um, the uh, next day I was in <sighs> Baltimore, and Hillel kindly. Uh, offered me some of the office space where he um, uh, does a lot of his uh, uh, business work. And I got to meet his lovely wife and got to work at a nice, um, yeah, just a, a great desk and internet and got a lot of the editing accomplished for episode 283. And then we, you know, it's not all work. It's a little bit of play. After that, we uh, headed over to a place called... Um, Oh, Chaps Pit Beef. I believe that's the name of it. It's kind of like a, a place that was it's like Are a hole in the wall um, place that was featured on Diners, di uh, di Divers. Diners, Drive-Ins and, di drive and Dives. Mm -hmm. uh, a show so, on some order of those words. Something yeah. like that with Guy, Guy Fieri. Guy Fieri. Yeah, Fieri. 
Uh, by the way, he's got a place like right next to the hotel in this uh, waterside thing. They're like rejuvenating it um, over there. It's called the Smokehouse. It says Guy Fieri's. How do you say it? Guy Fieri. Fieri's Smokehouse. And I didn't realize he had any restaurants like that. So it's like right next door. So <laughs> I might just have to go over there and grab a bite to eat for dinner. Sounds pretty good. Check it out. Anyway. Um, so I just wanted to thank you, Hillel, for um, you know making that space available to me. And uh, really, it really helped. And so uh, you're, you're a good friend. And I appreciate everything you do for us here on the APG show, including coming out of the closet every show to talk to us about slack and you know, if anybody knows how about you know how to be a slacker it's hello mm-hmm. okay he's the expert <laughs> and uh anything else steph before we uh, sign off oh i don't think so okay well sorry until, i missed you guys the past few weeks we That's missed all. you and, uh, it was only like a week it wasn't even yeah. that long but somehow you did like two shows yeah it's just the weird thing about the timing of availability and everything else dana is still yeah. out there riding his motorcycle i believe he's had another little uh, bout of bad luck with the uh with the motorbike uh overheating yeah. or something and so he's in the yosemite area in northern california so dana hopefully if you're listening i hope that uh you fixed your harley davidson and uh, things get back on track, and uh, lots of good luck come your way. <laughs> yes, enjoyable, safe travels. Yes, and until next time, wishing you clear skies, unlimited visibility, and talons, Douglas. Cheers, y'all. Good day. I used to be such a good, good pilot till I started APG. I opened doors for little old ladies I helped them to their seats Airline pilot guy I fly America Airline pilot guy He can't land in heavy fall I got no friends cause I'm always flying I just don't have the time I can land this old plane. I can land it just fine. Airline pilot guy, I fly America. Oh, airline pilot guy, he can land in heavy fall. Airline pilot guy, I fly Statements, views, and opinions expressed on the Airline Pilot Guy podcast may not represent the views, opinions, or policies 
of any airline, real or fictionalized, mentioned, implied, or accidentally slipped by any of the participants, guests, or feedback providers you may or may not have heard, may or may not believe you may have heard, on this or any prior episode of the Airline Pilot Guy podcast.